0: this is abby martin welcome to media roots radio so i wanted to record a little addition to the podcast you're about to listen to because a lot of that conversation is about the true legacy of george hw bush and we would be remiss to talk only about a war criminal's death without mentioning how we actually lost a true hero who spent his life exposing war crimes my comrade Journalist, author, William Bloom, who we spoke about in a previous episode needing medical help, has died at 85 years old. He was one of the most fervent, fiercest critics of U.S. foreign policy, and his work will serve as a beacon for generations to come. I interviewed him on Breaking the Set a couple years ago, and we had kept in touch ever since. And we got into some heated arguments, one of which he criticized my report on the Berlin Wall and said, I thought you were red! Um, The other, I criticized him on his coverage of ISIS. But at the end of the day, I think he saw me as kind of the torchbearer carrying on his work in a way. And I just wish I could have been closer to him earlier on to glean more of his genius. Two of his books, I think, are really crucial books for understanding the scope and consequences of U.S. militarism and imperialism. Rogue State and Killing Hope. Killing Hope, US Military and CIA Interventions Since World War II is a book thoroughly documenting US interventions and one I relied on heavily for the creation and continuation of Empire Files. On Twitter, Alex Burnell told me this Killing Hope is one of those seminal texts in my turn to the left. In the anti war canon, it's irreplaceable. It's one of the most thorough records of invasions, democratic subversions, propaganda efforts that the U.S. empire was responsible for in the 20th century. And I wanted to read a quick introduction to Killing Hope about Americans' willful ignorance of their government's actions. That's really, really fascinating. The former Chinese premier, Cho En-Lei, once observed, one of the delightful things about Americans is that they have absolutely no historical memory. It's probably even worse than he realized, During the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant accident in Pennsylvania, a Japanese journalist, Atsuo Kaneko, of the Japanese Kyoto News Service, spent several hours interviewing people temporarily housed at a hockey rink, mostly children, pregnant women, and young mothers. He discovered that none of them had heard of Hiroshima. Mention of the name drew a blank. To the foreign policy oligarchy in Washington, it is more than delightful. So obscured is the comprehensive record of American interventions that when in 1975 the Congressional Research Service of the Library of Congress was asked to undertake a study of covert activities of the CIA to date, it was able to come up with a very minor portion of the overseas incidents presented in this book for the same period. For all the information that's made its way into popular consciousness or into school texts, encyclopedias, or other standard reference works, there might as well exist strict censorship in the United States. Incredible. You know, Rogue State is pretty much a mini encyclopedia of the, the many criminal acts perpetrated by the United States. You know, Osama bin Laden once hailed Bloom's blistering critique of US empire as well. You know, sadly, this really affected Bloom's speaking tours and engagements when in reality, people should have heralded this. I mean, again, Bloom really does talk about this dumbed down notion of American policymakers saying, why do they hate us? And they keep perpetuating the notion that we're different when we commit atrocities because we mean well and we have no idea why people attack us. And, you know, he talks about this. This idea that the rise of anti-American terrorism owes nothing to American policies, in fact, postulates an America that is always the aggrieved innocent in a treacherous world, a benign U.S. government peacefully going about its business, but being provoked into taking extreme measures to defend its people, its freedom, its democracy. There consequently is no good reason to modify US foreign policy, and many who might observe otherwise no better are scared into supporting the empire's wars out of the belief that there's no choice but to crush without mercy, or even without evidence, this irrational international force out there that hates the US with an abiding passion. And he discusses how in most of these cases, terrorism is committed against the West in a declared act of retaliation against Western foreign policy. Um, he discusses thoroughly how terrorism is fundamentally propaganda. It's a bloody form of propaganda, and it follows um, that if the perpetrators of a terrorist act declare what their objective was, their statement should carry credibility, no matter what one thinks of the objective or the method used to achieve it. And he goes over a very long list of actual declarations of everyone from the 93 World Trade Center bombing to Osama bin Laden. So going back to, you know, Osama bin Laden citing his book, Rogue State, saying it would be useful for Americans to read this. There's a serious message here that people should pay attention to. Why do they hate us? While Bill pretty much elucidates that, you know, Bill also wrote for a bulletin called the Covert Action Information Bulletin, where he exposed people like the assassin in chief of a network that the UN later found had killed more than 900 people. Um, this guy had been trained at the International Police Academy, which was a CIA training outfit based in Virginia. So this is like one of the many things that he would expose. And I wanted to follow up with. Just a final note from his Anti-Empire Report. He wrote for years and years and years a newsletter to about a 1,000 subscribers called the Anti-Empire Report, and it was a weekly newsletter of just incredible insight. I read it every week, and in one of his editions of the report, Bill writes this, and I'm going to close out here. If I were the president, I could stop terrorist attacks against the United States in a few days, permanently. I would first apologize very publicly and very sincerely, to all the widows and orphans, the impoverished and the tortured, and all the many millions of other victims of American imperialism. Then I would announce to every corner of the world that America's global military interventions have come to an end. I would then inform Israel that it is no longer the 51st State of the Union, but oddly enough, a foreign country. Then I would reduce the military budget by at least 90% and use the savings to pay reparations to the victims, and repair the damage from the many American bombings, invasions, and sanctions. There would be more than enough money. One year's military budget in the U.S. is equal to more than 20000 per hour for every hour since Jesus Christ was born. And that's one year. That's what I would do on my first three days in the White House. On the fourth day, I'd be assassinated. Rest in peace, William Bloom.
1: This is Robbie Martin chiming in on the tragic death of William Bloom. I don't know what more I can add to Abby's really nice, heartfelt eulogy, but I just wanted to say that, William, you are a huge inspiration on me, and to me, you almost seem like a prophet. Your prescience is so incredible that when I found out that your book... Rogue State: A Guide to the World's Only Superpower was written in 2000, and not after 9/11. I was completely blown away. It's those those rare examples that you see of, you know, anti-imperialist people who were studying U.S. foreign policy. It almost seems like they had lived through 9/11 by the things they were writing. And William Bloom uh, falls into that category like no other. You know, you can compare him to Chomsky, Howard Zinn, and some other people, but for me. He was more important and more formative for my worldview as an anti-imperialist. I first read Killing Hope uh, around the time of the Iraq War, maybe a little after. It, it just completely shaped my view of America forever. Rest in peace, William. You will be missed. Greatly missed.
0: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin.
1: This is Robbie Martin. Thank you, everybody, for listening.
0: What's up, Robbie?
1: Nothing much. Just trying to not make myself completely nauseous uh, with this bombardment (laughs) of George H.W. Bush funeral coverage that seems to be endless. Like a whole day of them driving his coffin to, like, wherever the fuck they were going to put it. I don't even know. I I honestly... I couldn't even handle it, so.
0: I have not turned on the television since getting back from Mexico. Smart idea. God. Yeah. Good idea. I knew, I knew, yeah. I mean, I heard that he had died there, and we did a cheers to it, but, um, yeah, I just can't stomach it, man. I really can't, especially when I found out the post office was closed. I don't even remember oh that happening God, yeah. for other people.
1: No, I have never heard of that before. Um, But, yeah, we have so much shit to talk about right. with him. And and uh, I guess let's just say before we move on, it's uh, like... I would say he's easily one of the most dangerous disgusting figures to ever walk the face of the earth and I'm really glad that he's dead and humanity <laughs> was kind of given a little bit of breathing room now that he's gone. So that's how I feel yeah. about it but we have Yeah a lot and we'll to get
0: thing. in we'll get into him because at first I wasn't really interested in talking about him that much just because it's been so Uh, We've been inundated with, uh, you know, his sacred legacy. But yeah, after researching a little bit last night, I just went totally down the rabbit hole about how much of a nightmare this guy really was. But let's just go over headlines really quick, Robbie. Uh, if anyone hasn't listened to our last podcast about the Magnitsky Act, and I was saying it wrong the entire podcast. It's oh, so Magnitsky. Was I, Yeah. Um, it is available on the website to rent for $5. So you can check that out. It is not on Vimeo, but it is available to watch. Please check that out. You absolutely have to watch it on MagnitskyAct, I guess, dot com. Yeah, I, th- I think so, yeah. and it's
1: And just for... You know, clarity's sake, it's the whole title of the movie is actually the Magnitsky Act behind the scenes. Apparently, there's some still some region restriction viewing where people in Germany can't watch it off the website. So it's still being restricted on certain levels, but it's like one of the most censored movies. <laughs> Ever, which is just interesting in and of itself. So just for that reason, if you're interested in things that are like people are trying to ban constantly with powerful lawyers, then check this out. I mean, that, you know, but there's, it's a fascinating story. You can hear all about it. I would advise not listening to our entire last podcast if you don't want the movie kind of spoiled for you. I sort of realized after the fact that we didn't sort of delineate when we were going to covering too many spoilers and when we weren't. So if you listen like the first 20 or 30 minutes, there's really no spoilers in it. So yeah, definitely check that out.
0: And also check out, I did the second Empire Files uh, release after the fundraiser and we released an exclusive interview with Randy Credico, kind of the linchpin of the entire Russiagate investigation. Roger Stone is alleging that this guy is his back channel to WikiLeaks. So it was a really fascinating interview. I was able to grill him on, you know, why he knew Roger Stone and and his whole role with WikiLeaks and it kind of just blew the lid off of how ridiculous the Russia investigation really is. Once you realize who Randy Credico is and how he really has nothing to do with it, you guys are really gonna enjoy it. He's just a complete character and really fun guy. He has an amazing political history too. So check it out
1: you really get a full picture of what he's all about that the mainstream media is not going to give you. I mean, so, yeah, it's a really, totally. really necessary, important episode to watch.
0: Yeah, and just a little tidbit, he reveals that Roger Stone is a meth head, if that's yeah, surprising anyone. Among
1: other things, but I don't know. <laughs> There's some of the things you told me that he talked about. I am not sure what we can say publicly. Right. I know you wanted to talk about the Mike Pence Q thing, but there is a strange right. connection between... Um, Credico, Stone, and that event. But, but just really quickly, Mike Pence did a photo op with the Browder County Sheriff's Department just randomly. And one of the sheriffs in the picture, who was dressed in SWAT military gear, which is strange for a sheriff's department in general, was at a QAnon patch blatantly displayed on his shoulder. And um, if that's not crazy in and of itself, Mike Pence later deleted the photo and then uploaded a new one with different people from the Browder County Sheriff's Department not wearing QAnon patches. So that's very interesting. That means that the Trump administration is definitely aware of what it is to some degree. But Roger Stone and Credico apparently helped get this Browder County Sheriff's guy elected many, many years ago who was actually in charge of the department that had the guy wearing the QAnon patch. So I just thought it was an interesting connection. Wow. We didn't realize, like those stories seem totally unrelated, but they're actually not just coincidentally. That's yeah, really strange. Yeah.
0: James Fields, the neo-Nazi who killed Heather Hare, got first degree murder, which I was really happy about because as we know, there's actually legislation being enacted across the country that's trying to absolve people from murdering protesters with their vehicles, like Mm -hmm. literally vehicular manslaughter. Um, It's like a stand your ground inside your car. Totally. Stand your ground inside your car against protesters. Yeah, exactly. So that's actually happening. So I was shocked that James Fields got this. And it's not just first degree murder. I think every person that he hit is another potential hate crime and potentially an attempted murder charge. So he could be in jail for life. And I really hope he is. And I think what really hurt him in terms of the defense (laughs) was that he texted his mom when she said, you should be careful, he said, we're not the ones who need to be careful attached with a photo of Hitler. So it yeah. probably hurt his defense a little bit <laughs> when he said that he was, you know, just uh, acting in self-defense, that the people, he was worried about his life. But that Abby, people were attacking why are you his calling car. everybody
1: Nazis? It's really hyperbolic. I know. Why? Come on, you can't call everybody Nazis. It's
0: it's just super hyperbolic. And he's just like a right wing
1: guy, like who cares about like white genocide.
0: He's really concerned. He thought that uh, we were committing genocide against white people. So I, I can see, you know, you, you see just, the, the logic there. It's just fucking fascinating
1: the way that people deny, deny, and deny and act like it's these Nazis aren't a big deal. They don't really exist. They're not a threat. And here we have literally in court evidence coming out that he sent his mom a picture of Hitler saying people need to be like they need to be careful.
0: Yeah. And he drove around looking for the crowd because I remember when this happened, there were so many people who call themselves generic, just mainstream conservatives that were all defending him. Mm-hmm. No, you don't understand. He was, a t- he was being attacked. He, this was self-defense. He had to get out of there. Yeah. Um, they were hitting his cars with baseball bats. Oh, were they? I remember just, that's no, interesting. No, no. I mean, these were literally what people were saying would, to me as a defense of him, like uh-huh. smashing into people.
1: Well, that's so funny that people would say that because the court and the lawyer, the teams of lawyers on both sides would comb for all the available video evidence there and obviously that does not exist so that (laughs) so it's just yeah they'll throw out anything to make it seem like these fucking murderous Nazis are fine it's just so weird that people anybody would have doubled down on this guy at all and act like he wasn't a Nazi that he wasn't a blatant murderer strange to me that some of these like racists you know can't just admit their race like like why can't Gavin just be like yeah I'm racist I'm not like a straight-up neo-Nazi but I am a racist it's just weird I, that there's yeah, so like, much denial fucking still happening.
0: Be a proud chauvinist about how racist exactly. you are. Why do you think he got kicked off the blaze so soon? <laughs> Why do you think that happened? I, was, I don't even know. I mean, I didn't even know he was part of the blaze. Yeah, so, well, CRTV, all that shit popped off where the Proud Boys, he, like, stepped down, um, you know, theoretically, even though we know that that's bullshit. So he steps down from the Proud Boys. The other guy that they were pointing to... Take over had a slew of racist tweets of him like sending the N word out, throwing a noose out there to black people, like straight up again, neo Nazi rhetoric. So all of that became exposed. And then apparently he was getting. folded into the blaze where it said that now gavin mcginnis was going to be working at the blaze and then like it didn't even last like a week or something and now the blaze had issued a statement and they're like yeah um it didn't work out so they're not offering any explanation about why they let gavin mcginnis go before anything even started so he doesn't work for CRTV anymore apparently not interesting I don't know if he's trying to rebrand himself or got too hot. I I really don't know. After the FBI labeled them an extremist group, and then I read that they didn't label them an extremist group anymore. So who knows what is going on with that?
1: Yeah, that was a weird story. It's it's like the FBI released that report quietly, you Mm -hmm. know, and then they retract. They like announced that it
0: was like not really how people interpreted it or something. Very very strange. Right. Yeah. Um, Anything that makes the Trump administration look good is just, it's always questionable to me. It's like, I don't believe that the Trump administration called them an extremist group. So it's like, if this is coming out of Trump somehow, there must be a mistake.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And and I'm surprised, frankly, that Trump's administration hasn't released a report on how Antifa is a dangerous terror, domestic have,
0: No, they have. And black lives matter.
1: And, but just sort of like as an aside, did they go into detail
0: about them? I thought that there was a specific like new direction at the FBI focusing in on black extremists that's true yeah
1: I remember reading that but I don't remember the details oh about Antifa yeah yeah
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's really no joke and like we said in the last podcast it's all masked in in jokes it's all masked and oh you're triggered libs are being triggered by our Nazism Um, so yeah this is actually happening Mm -hmm. Uh. I just got back from Mexico. Mexico City is one of the most amazing cities in the world. It is so awesome. Uh, we just happened to be there at the time that Oberdor was getting inaugurated. So we were able to go to the main square and see him be inaugurated. It was fucking amazing. I guess the most distinct thing out of the ceremony was it was all like indigenous. It wasn't at all like elitist feeling, and I know that this is all just completely rhetoric and we have no idea what kind of president Obrador is going to be, but the fact that he just solely focused on poor people, working class people, and indigenous people was just such a a stark contrast from anything that I've ever seen in America. Um, where poor people don't exist when you're talking about the political elites and, and what they discuss. So it was really amazing. There was a family member of the missing 43 students there. Um, you know, he, he got down on his knees crying to Obrador and Oberdor got down on his knees. A uh, really beautiful thing to be there for. And at the same time, we also got the chance to see Roger Waters. Of course, huge Palestinian activist. The entire show was just all about Trump. You have to give him credit for going out there every show and making such a strong statement. And we got the chance to meet him afterward, and it was really uh, amazing that he had even seen Empire Files, and so that was really cool. So it was a a cool trip, inspiring um, to see Roger Waters. But it reminded me of what the fuck happened to the migrant caravan. You know, being in Mexico, and this was this huge talking point where everyone was whipped up into a frenzy, about what are they going to do when the migrants invade in the caravan? And it just seemed like nothing happened. I mean, I know that there were a huge amount of migrants that came to the border. And I know that, um, you know, they got tear gassed, obviously, from like militarized police. And then Trump blocked them all from seeking asylum. So like what what exactly happened there? And why did everyone just stop talking about it? Just dropped it like a hot potato.
1: Yeah, everyone stopped talking about it. I mean it's uh yeah i mean it's obvious why i mean it was mostly all politicking from both sides um and and you know there was there was definitely people from the left being like you know obama tear gas people at the border you know etc and yeah that's that's true um but you know trump is doing it now (laughs) also and it's really bad um so You know, I just again, it's just hard to find the type of like media critique that I that really resonates with me because even the people pointing out that Obama also did it, they didn't seem like upset that Trump was doing it now, which I just find odd. It's that more that weird mindset. It's like only talking about you know, and yeah, it was fucking terrible when Obama was doing it, but I think what's more a more appropriate media critique would be like the mainstream media didn't talk about it when Obama was doing it, but only talks about it now. You know, because they're so against Trump, that's really hypocritical of them. Like that critique in of itself, I could totally understand that because that's true. But
0: instead of saying, "Why do you care?" Yeah, exactly. Like those are two different
1: critiques. Like, well, you didn't say anything when Obama was doing it. It's like that's not a real critique because it's like you don't really know my politics. You know, I just think it's it's very knee jerkish. I think
0: it is. It's super knee jerkish and really bizarre. Yeah, and this is.
1: let's just create show the difference here yes obama was a was fucking terrible on even legal immigrants on in some regards or people trying to seek asylum i mean um trump actually said that people should return fire to people throwing rocks with live ammunition that's a that actually marks a very specific difference from the obama administration and you can't just downplay it and be like well that's just rhetoric like he didn't really do it he didn't really mean it I mean that's what all these you know like we were touching on the last pod, couple podcasts ago people pick and choose what Trump means and what he doesn't mean to make themselves more accept, like accepting or able to tolerate it more or something but that's a pretty big deal it, it isn't just do such outrageous shit that we forget that he said something like that you know only like a month ago but that's a really serious thing you
0: know Yeah and and especially when you're talking about uh, this ongoing massacre which we're going to discuss later on with the great march of return this is a green light to fascistic behavior to extrajudicially execute people that are literally doing nothing. Yeah. Um, that are protesting, that are just standing there. I mean, what, what is this rhetoric doing to embolden these already kind of Nazi-esque elements that are embedded in our border patrol and military? You're a complete fucking fool if you think that this doesn't have any effect.
1: And you're also a fool if all you do is look at the way CNN is covering it and picking apart their narratives about it as like, you won. Like, oh my God, this picture of this woman running away with these two children. Most of the people there are actually like young men. Like this is like so that's such a nonsense pl- like place for you to be politically. It's just so I feel so like out of <laughs> out of step well, that, with most people politically right now.
0: That's why people keep falling prey to the worst aspects of our political sphere because there's so many different avenues and you know you, you just knee jerkily reject whatever CNN says, and then you just kind of fall into Trump kind of talking points and that's a really dangerous thing because you have to have a proper analysis about how we got here and also where we are and why both are are pretty bad which brings me to Hillary Clinton because as much as we're discussing how shocking what you know what Trump is doing mm-hmm. is completely horrifying and stunning and what are the democrats doing as a response you would think that Obama and Hillary would come out there and have a mea culpa about like Obama might have some grievances about the fact that he was the deporter in chief you know you think that he would have some reflection like hey maybe this was wrong um that I also did put kids in cages that I also deported millions of people more than any other president at that point in my administration but no instead you have Obama making these speeches to Wall Street just nonchalantly like he's sitting in like this giant wooden throne talking about how much money he made for them did you see this Uh he's just like when he talks to Wall Street executives, he says, have you checked your stock portfolio when I got into office and where it is now? And he was like, you should be thanking me because you see how much it's gone up. That was me. You should thank me. So that's where he's at. And then where's Hillary Clinton? She's literally talking about how Europe must focus on immigration if they want to stop right wing populism. If that's what you actually think right wing populism is arising out of, you have no fucking idea what is going on. Can you imagine, like, looking at Europe and looking at the US and saying, you know what? Um, Close the borders. That's going to fucking stop authoritarianism. Are you kidding me? What about the destruction of the economy? What about the privatization, the neoliberal doctrine, the austerity? What, like, what the fuck do you think is causing this? It's just so (laughs) absurd. Like, of course, right wing populism is going to be more attractive to people because they're speaking to people who are economically. Down and out. I mean, that's like how populism works. And that's how authoritarianism takes over. You punch down, you blame your economic grievances on like migrants Mm -hmm. and refugees. And the fact that she's feeding into that.
1: Yeah, it's really, it's really disgusting. Um, I mean, even uh, what's interesting is like, you know, Jamie Kerchick is now sort of like a resistance guy, you know, pro Hillary, anti-Trump. And one of the last major things he did was he wrote a book called The End of Europe publicized all over the place it's all about how the uh, migrant crisis in europe is like really bad for society and it's really harmful and how we should curb it so he wrote that like two years ago so i mean that was like you only go back two years right before trump and a lot of like even these like classical liberal people on the right were saying all this shit too So it's hilarious to me the way that Max Boot and all these neocons now are like rebranding and acting like they're so compassionate against immigrants. Max Boot like writes an editorial every month saying like, okay, conservatives, now time to admit we were all wrong on immigration or all wrong on, the newest one he did was we're all wrong on climate change.
0: And now I've come around. It's like, what the fuck? Fuck all these people. I know. It's so funny. Uh, I wanted to just, before we get into George... H. W. Bush, uh, read my lips. I wanted to just give a quick shout out to anyone who has either lost their home in the fire or knows anyone who has, because Mike Papantonio, America's lawyer on RT, uh, the guy who's, you know, famously done class actions against everyone from Dow Chemical to the opioid manufacturers, Purdue Pharma, he is now doing a class action against PG&E, um, and he is helping anyone who's a victim of the L.A. L.A. fires or the Bay Area fires. So Campfire Paradise or anything in Malibu. So reach out to me. I'm going to leave a link um, on the timeline right now of how to get in touch with him because he, he definitely will help you. We heard statistics about how many people died. It was absolutely a nightmare. You know, 80 plus people. It's just the most tragic thing in the world, but it really doesn't hit home until you read what actually these people went through and what happened. Um, because a lot of times you're like, well, why didn't they evacuate? Oh, you just kind of speculate how these people died without actually knowing how they died. And just really quickly, I mean, it's just fucking nuts. What happened in paradise? There was almost a fire that Did the same amount of damage ten years ago, and then aside from that, there was no mandatory evacuation. That was all at once. It was like done in a different quadrants of the city. Like one couple woke up at seven thirty. They're having their morning coffee, and they look outside, and their yard is already completely on fire. And by the time that they were able to like grab their dog and a few prized possessions, their car was already melting. Holy fuck! Um, Her her like steering wheel had already melted to her hand and so they had to flee out of the car and start running and she just said that um she said people on either side of her were jumping into like a creek because the fire was already completely enveloped like both sides of the the road Holy shit. and they all jumped into a bus and the bus driver was like barreling into parked cars and then it like careened into a gutter And she said that they had to, like, whoever was able to leave the bus just had to fucking flee and just, like, reach with their arms outward, running ahead with their arms outstretched in the just pitch black smoke. And she said she just happened to run into a fire truck. Um, and she doesn't even know like who survived. She said that one woman was in in labor Holy when this happened. Shit. yeah, and the fire truck was like, you have to just press down on the horn and keep honking so we know which car is yours. And like that that woman never made it out. Oh my God. I mean, it just I just want to speak a little bit to something yeah. personal
1: that happened um, to a lot of people that I knew and cared about. i w- we we didn't really talk about this too much when it happened. Um, you know we we planned to do a podcast about it but it got I, I was too emotional I think to release it but it's just one of the most traumatizing disturbing things to me about the, the idea of like a fire is that you don't even think about things like smoke and being pitch black like you like the thing you're almost like inherently afraid of as like a living creature is like the heat the fire right. itself it's like that's what's most fearful when you think about it but just in terms of a personal story that where I knew three people that died in a, in a terrible fire, the ghost ship fire in Oakland, um, one of the most horrifying things about it is before people even knew there was a fire, the electricity went out in the building oh in pitch God. blackness. So it's, it's incomprehensible to imagine the type of adrenaline and fear that you would feel, not just from knowing there's fire all around you, but not being able to fucking see at the same time like that is so scary to me and, and you never it's like it doesn't even cross your mind when you think about you know escaping from a fire but that's like
0: it's a real thing that happened that hap- happens almost any major yeah, fire right the smoke inhalation and the inability to see like both of those taking away faculties that are like you have to have them to get out of that situation and they're both gone
1: yeah and most people this is what you know coroners and fire investigators will always say most people in fires die from smoke inhalation. Mm -hmm. They don't die from being burned alive. Mm -hmm. Um, So just remember that, like, you know, I mean, it's, it's horrifying to think about, but I mean, it's a really real thing. Like, so, Have a fire extinguisher. You know, this is not going to save you from a forest fire, but have a fire extinguisher. Have a a plan, you know, not just for fire, but for any type of natural disaster, like an earthquake. Um, have an escape route with loved ones, have a meeting point if you get lost during an emergency. Have even a backup meeting point. These are all just basic things that I think everybody should think about. Um, and I don't mean to send alarmists, I'm just trying to be realistic. I mean, I've escaped my house before because a house a few blocks down um, was fully engulfed in flames. The flames were four stories tall. Jesus. It was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. I, I, the, my fight or flight instinct kicked in and I got as much shit as I could from the house and bolted down the street you know, with my, my pets and, and mm-hmm. my loved ones. And, um, and it really made me realize that everybody should have a plan because I didn't have a fucking plan. Mm -hmm. And I completely panicked. So at least if you have a plan, you can mitigate some of that panic. If something ever happens, know where the exits are, make sure when you're going to a venue, it's, it seems safe enough where even if there was a fire, you could get out, you know, even at warehouse parties, like some warehouse parties you go to are the funnest of as fuck parties. You can go to, they happen all night. Anything goes, some of the best music, but I mean, don't don't just, like, you know, poo-poo the type of shit I'm saying. Like, be really careful about it. The Ghost Ship Fire anniversary um, was uh, on December 2nd. And, um, you know, it's still a really sad day for me every time it comes around. It's only been two years since it happened, but um, I take this stuff very seriously.
0: I remember just a couple months ago I read just a really disturbing article about the ghost ship from the sur- one of the survivors who jumped out that second story window. The only he person said that yeah, and he said that they didn't know that there was a fire until the turntables burst into flames. You're was like can't. sitting there watching someone play music, and all of a sudden, like the DJ booth just burst into flames, and you have maybe like a minute and a half, maybe a minute.:
1: Yeah, maybe. I can't. I just had to stop reading articles that were right. I mean, it's just such an enraging situation. The guy who ran the ghost ship, um, Derek Ion, is in, he's, he's wait awaiting trial right now. I hope he goes to jail for a very fucking long time. Um, The landlord, however, um, who owns several buildings in Oakland, uh, is got a giant insurance payout and is not held liable at all. So hopefully the civil lawsuit by some of the families um, who lost loved ones in the fire, they'll get something from the actual building owners. But the person who was in charge of renting that space out to performers and and tenants is also hugely responsible. And not just that, he has a record of being an abusive, violent, psychopathic piece of shit. And people should look into him. He even had a blog about swastikas and how they're good. So this motherfucker needs to go away for a long time.
0: Um, I mean, it just it just really the the fires. I mean, I guess it was so infuriating to me because I was like, how did the city not take this seriously? The first time it happened 10 years ago, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do when no one takes the initiative? It's like, this is this is what kills me about the system. It's like, there's absolutely no initiative. Why? Because it just it costs money. Like people don't care enough to prioritize safety and planning and knowing, literally knowing that it's an inevitability for a fire to happen Uh like this. Well, it's
1: just so disturbing, Abby, because even even let's just talk, you know, obviously the people directly affected by the fire. Were you know, experienced the worst. The people who lived there, yeah. the people who didn't get out, even the people who s- survived, but their houses were burned down and their possessions were burned or their pets were burned, whatever those people suffered by far the most. Cannot compare to that level of suffering. But what really brought it all home to me personally was not only just knowing someone who lost their home in the fire, but experiencing the level of air quality here and the smoke. In Oakland and San Francisco, that actually rated it the second and sometimes the first highest in the terms of ranking, the worst air quality in the world. And I didn't hear a single public announcement. I didn't get a text message. I didn't see anything on TV. I didn't, you know, I, I talked to people and I was like, where are the places where you can go to get breathing masks right now? Like, is the government, is, is, are the cities giving out breathing masks? Do they have an announcement? Like, it was just no, no information was available. You would go to stores and all the masks were sold out. The air quality was so bad, my eyes were burning indoors. Right. I mean, and that's just an example of how fucking incompetent the government is to actually protect people. I mean, just on a basic level, you would think that there would be outreach programs to give out air masks nothing nothing that I saw
0: yeah you just have to see autonomous like networks of like yeah. occupy style branches trying to organize themselves and that's exactly like what, the only thing I could entities. find like a
1: senior center giving out air mass to children and seniors because they needed it the most you know like stuff like that it's just
0: like what a the disgusting fuck? country we live in
1: and, and imagine what's in that smoke I mean it's not just no. wood smoke from trees it's like toxic smoke Right. Most of the shit that burned was structures, plastic, right. metal, um, rubber, uh, paint. I mean, that's like, and a lot of those houses are really old. I mean, there's lead in the in the smoke. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like it's the World like,
0: Trade Center. It's like pulverized, like melted poison.
1: Yeah, and they actually did a study in UC Davis. There's like a chimp preserve for chimpanzees that there was new chimps oh, no, born after one of the fires and before. And they measured like their lung capacity or their, their like, ability to breathe near a, a big wildfire that took place near Davis. And they were actually able to show, prove that the monkeys were born before the fire and breathed in that smoke, had much worse lung capacity. Oh, no. And like damaged lungs just from breathing in the smoke from right. a nearby wildfire. Yeah. So that's a really serious thing. You can imagine that a lot of children who live near those areas are going to grow up with breathing and lung problems. It's just unimaginable. And I can't even, the government's not going to save you, is basically the point of this rant I'm going on. So save yourself and be prepared.
0: You cannot count on anything. And especially, even if something happens, um, there's no incentive to, you know, prevent it from happening again. So, yeah. No.
1: Yeah. It's really sad. I mean, even after this new Bay Bridge got built with broken bolts, with all this controversy coming out about how it was built fucked up they had to winch the tower to make it look straight all this crazy shit we went through a major earthquake in 1989 that broke part of the bay bridge like it was like a fucking like a action movie type of disaster so it's just bizarre that these issues just go away like oh yeah they probably did some earthquake safe stuff on it but like the bolts are broken but that's not a big deal
0: when you look at our infrastructure in the u.s it's literally an f (laughs) Um, When it's analyzed by like architects and the engineers, you know, yeah, and uh, the fact that I mean, can you imagine we're the richest country that's ever existed in the history of the world and we're spending God knows how many fucking trillions of dollars to just murder and obliterate little kids every day and our bridges are like falling apart like everything's teetering on the edge of collapse. It's like we're one wildfire away from fucking burning down like all of California yeah, I mean um, and yeah, it's a pretty I mean,
1: precarious place to live. It's so bizarre. I mean, you look at the San Francisco skyline now and it's filled with these like futuristic looking gi- giant new skyscrapers. It looks completely mm-hmm. different than it did 10 years ago. It looks like a totally different city. Yeah.
0: Just zero regulation. Anyone can just come in and yeah. just build build build. And and the amount and and just one example, the
1: sinking tower. There was this giant, yeah. beautiful new skyscraper built in San Francisco where like two or three years after they built it, they're like, whoops, the tower is sinking into the ground.
0: How does it Dave even happen? Dave logic, less regulation, Robbie. That's because there was too many government regulations on the tower. That's why it's sinking. We need less regulation. Yeah. so Abolish I mean, regulations.
1: So the people who bought, you know, condos in there and all the people who are renting in there are just like, what the fuck?
0: Oh yeah, I'm sure that there's property's worth I'm sure there's probably like a like small print on the lease where they're like, if the tower sinks, it's not <laughs> yeah. we're not liable for it. Um, so let's move on to George H.W. Bush. So of course hagiography just to the maximum. I mean, everywhere you look, you know, of course the federal agencies were all closed to honor this asshole. Um, you know Federal agencies Including one the, the fucking mail Our mail Yeah including the mail So George H.W. Bush dies at 94 He was the 41st president He got elected in 1988 He was a one term president And he was a terrible one term president um, He was Reagan's vice president From 81 to 89 He was also the first and only CIA director to lead the country. So when you're looking at George H.W. Bush's legacy and you think, oh, whatever, how much damage could he have really done? He was just a one-term president. And he was kind of like a joke, you know? And he was looked at as like this lovable grandpappy um, who copped a feel to cheerleaders in his 90s and everyone laughed about it and wore like silly socks posing in photos. Well, the problem is... The more that I looked into his legacy and just, you know, it wasn't just about his term, obviously. Again, he was leading the CIA during some of the most egregious scandals. Think about the era that he was the CIA director in. It was coming off the wave of Vietnam, coming off the wave of all of these political assassinations, um, all of the Kennedys, MLK, Malcolm X... Um, you know, they learned from Vietnam. They learned from the gruesome imagery that Americans saw the draft. So all of this was being reshaped. And the CIA, of course, was intimately involved in all of these things and the reshaping and rebranding of the country and, uh, and the wars pretty much moving forward. So people like to say, well, he only served for a year. So, you know, how, how powerful could he have been? But he was a really well
1: regarded CIA man.
0: Yeah, of course, you don't just become director without Mm -hmm. paying your dues. Yeah. And so it's fascinating to see a CIA man through and through come to be the CEO of the empire. We always hear about Putin as this crazed KGB agent. I mean, again, he was never director of the KGB. And even if he were, I mean, still Bush was the head of the CIA. Yeah. So it's just stunning that we don't really
1: talk about that. Well, it's just so funny because it's just such an inherently nationalistic talking point. brainwashed U.S. nationalism, patriotism talking point that somehow the KGB, because it's like a classic spy movie, Cold War era, like evil entity is seen as just incomprehensibly evil. But the CIA, oh, no, it's fine. He was a CIA director. Like he's a great, he's a great friendly president.
0: Yeah. And remember Dick Cheney was his defense secretary. These are people who have Mm -hmm. been in, you know, talk about like deep state actors. These are people who have been involved uh, for a long, long time. Yeah. Working behind the scenes and just directly blatantly in the administration.
1: Yep. I mean, there's a lot of, you can trace a lot of the PNAC neocon lineage back to George H.W. Bush. I don't think a lot of people realize that either. Mm -hmm. I mean, he brought all these people together. You know, he combined them all together, sort of disparate forces from the Reagan administration, from the Ford administration, and made like a neocon cabal during his presidency.
0: Yeah, and let's not forget how Bush's, I mean, Bush's dad helped Hitler's rise to power. Yeah. Um, Prescott Bush was uh, very involved in companies that profited from the financial backers of Nazi Germany. Absolutely. So. That That's a really, really important thing. And it's, just like Trump's dad was a Nazi. Well,
1: it's remember. interesting because a lot of that stuff I first heard about like from conspiracy movies, mm-hmm. you know, years mm-hmm. and years ago, like in the early 2000s. And I feel like there's it's actually harder to find like mainstream media stories or like investigative reporting that actually backs up that factually. But it's out there. Um, you just need to search a little bit for it. There's stuff written in the Guardian in the 90s. Look around on the internet. You will find plenty of sources to actually back that up. It's not just a conspiracy narrative. Um, he, Prescott Bush was actually profiting off of Nazi Germany
0: yeah years after the horrors and atrocities were very apparent and very well scrutinized yeah. and this actually came out of yeah you're right it did start in conspiracy lore but a multi-billion dollar like legal action from holocaust survivors against the bush family kind of brought this to light oh wow and I a lot of things were of declassified yeah a lot of things were declassified and showed just the extent of involvement and in business dealings with these companies
1: Well, I wanted to just throw this in really quick because we didn't didn't really talk about this, but um, just as an interesting aside, uh, one of the most elite fraternities in the world, uh, the Skull and Bones at Yale, the only family to have three generations of their own family in the fraternity is the Bush family. Um, Many of the people who were in this fraternity went on later to become CEOs, intelligence people, State Department people, um, even presidents and presidential candidates. John Kerry was also a member. Um, Robert Kagan was a member. Uh, But interestingly, Prescott Bush was also named in a totally different lawsuit than the one you described by the living family of Native American Geronimo, because he was actually one of the Skull and Bones tales they would tell is how one of their totems in their, in their fraternity is a skull and bones, a literal human skull with two bones. They would tell their members that it was actually Geronimo's skull that they grave robbed. And this was something that Prescott Bush was apparently involved in because this family sued, later sued, um, you know, after, long after he was dead, tried to sue the skull and bones for their remains back. Um, so, it's just very disgusting to think about, even if they were lying about it. It kind of reminds me of like a Sam Hyde weave style thing to do, to, even if they were just telling their members that as a lie. Like, yeah, we fucking uh, looted a, you know, sacred burial ground to get our like fraternity totem, right? Right. So, and but then on top of that, George H.W. Bush and his son were both given designations in Skull and Bones based on their level of sexual experience, which is just gross to think about. And George H.W. Bush was given the designation of Magog, which means sexually extremely experienced. And his son didn't give up any of his secrets, so he wasn't given a designation. So it's just bizarre to think that the father and son, you know, both presidents... At some point, apparently both masturbated inside of like a mock Halloween coffin while doing an initiation for this fraternity where their totemistic wow. object was the apparent pillaged skull of Geronimo. I mean, that's the we two like a presidents.
0: Normal, what, a, what a cool cast of characters. Yeah. Let's close down all of the federal agencies and honor the fuck out of them. Yeah. Yep. Let's have a parade to honor them They sound like really good guys, Robbie Yeah, and just as a as just historical aside I just
1: remembered this And I forgot his name, so forgive me But the first director of the CIA ever Was also in Skull and Bones I completely forgot his name um, But Robert De Niro actually made an interesting movie About that guy And there's a scene in it showing Matt Damon uh, He plays a CIA director Getting urinated on by other Skull and Bones members For the initiation
0: Good. I'm glad that they tried to do a really accurate depiction of what Skull and Bones really is. (laughs) Just a giant circle jerk where they piss on each other and um, try to steal Native American burial grounds. Which is weird because I was just remembering
1: Oliver Stone's film W, which shows W doing like fraternity hazing. And there's like nothing in it about Skull and Bones, like a normal fraternity. And I wonder why that is.
0: Bush was not in charge of the CIA during the Iran-Contra scandal. He was the vice president.
1: Yeah, he was the vice president. He so was that, only so CIA was director C- for one right, year. For one year, yeah. and then
0: he became VP. Yes. So he was the CIA director during Operation Condor, during like the, the implementation of all these like crazy right-wing dictatorships and anti-communism Absolutely. all across Latin America. But you have to assume that coming from the CIA director... To the VP, obviously he's going to bring, you know, all of all of these clandestine kind of activities with him. So you have to assume that yes, he was intimately involved in Iran Contra, and the Iran Iraq War. You know, the whole giving Saddam WMDs that we then used to destroy Iraq uh, as a justification. So. Yeah,
1: and just just for historical accuracy' sake, I mean, he so he was CIA director under Ford, and then when Carter came in, he actually resigned like on his inauguration date. And they, I guess, the you know the historians say it was because he was too partisan, and Carter didn't want to have like a partisan CIA director. I don't know the real story behind that, but I mean, there is a lot of evidence actually that he was involved in the October Surprise conspiracy by Reagan officials, of course, of course. And Robert Perry, and and if you don't know what that is, it's it's a very complicated story. It's very nuanced. You really need to explore it in full to understand it um i had a very like basic understanding of it years ago but robert perry of consortium news has written like several books that dive into all the connections between the bushes the you know what reagan did iran contra the october surprise i think he's done a whole book on the october surprise
0: mm-hmm. um
1: but everybody should check it out i mean that's where the term the october surprise comes from is what happened there and, and the end result of it was Reagan somehow negotiating behind the scenes to release the hostages in Iran to make Carter look bad and promise that the hostages would be released if he
0: won. And somehow he negotiated it secretly to
1: make it happen.
0: Let's talk about who this dude is because, you know, his funeral became another resistance event, just like Barbara. Uh, somehow these high-profile funerals are now, like, hubs of, like, talking shit about Trump and somehow making it into this big, like, media coup um, of, oh, look at a time of civility and normalcy and decency in the U.S. empire. You had Bill Clinton, you had Obama, Jimmy Carter, George W. Bush, Trump was there as well. And then you had George Bush passing candy again to Michelle. Isn't that so fun, this cute little thing that they do? It's like a bad movie script. And like perfectly exemplifies just this gross, gross behavior and insulation of the ruling elite that like they actually think that this is cute and somehow resonates with people. Like people are like, oh my God, like I, I like them now. I mean, it's They're weird so to me because it
1: seems like almost like George W. Bush like wants to fuck Michelle. I mean, even remembering back to the one after those um, police officers were killed in Dallas for that sniper. That yeah. funeral for them? Do you remember when he was dancing during right. the hallelujah yep. or whatever? Yep. That was really weird. I mean, it's still really crazy to watch that video. It
0: is. It's like he wants he thinks everybody around him is extremely amused. It's nauseating. It really is nauseating. I don't even know. I mean, the fact that you had the Q and it's like, where do you even go with that? You had the QAnon people convinced that there was gonna be like mass arrests oh my God, yeah. at the funeral. And how
1: and I mean how disgusting and also sad is it that obama actually shook trump's hand
0: yeah i mean after he tweeted out that photo of him looking like a demon seed like jailed i
1: mean it's just unbelievable to me if someone tweeted a photo i don't know if you said this but if if i if you did i apologize for stealing it but if someone tweeted a photo of me in jail uh, the last thing i would do is shake their hand or even look at them and it's almost like trump wants the wants obama to like him still it's strange like why would trump even shake his hand to shake his hand, you know. On some level, is hoping that, that Obama will think, you know, you, you know, we have to play dirty. Like I actually like, right. I respect <laughs> you as a person. Like this is just all fun and games, right? Kind of like what Jamie Kirchick wrote wrote to you when he reached out. Yeah, it's right. like, what's with all the personal attacks? It, it's a so a, a translation. This is all fun and games. Why are you taking it seriously? Exactly. Why are you taking a neocon smear campaign with headed by a neocon think tank run by Bill Crystal seriously? This is just all exactly. games. This is how DC exactly. works, dude.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's get into this guy's legacy because people are painting him as uh, this hunky-dory grandfather who, again, ruled the country as a civil man, as a gentleman who cared about the rule of law. Mm-hmm. So different than Trump, you know, so different than Trump. So a couple things that were fun to kind of go through and revisit history and and realize how disgusting of a person Um, George H.W. Bush was and how disgusting is it, this nepotism um, and just the lineage of like the Bush family and to be born into this hierarchy where you're guaranteed to like rule the country and you're all war criminals Mm -hmm. and you've paved the way to like completely destroy and destabilize the Middle East. You know, talking about how Trump and this Mueller investigation now, there was kind of a, a Bob Mueller style special counsel back during the Iran-Contra scandal. Um, But George H.W. Bush blocked the investigation. Mm -hmm. And one of the last acts of his tenure was pardoning the six former Reagan officials that were involved in the scandal. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about when Reagan sold weapons to Iran to raise money for the Contras. And, of course, we know how much George H.W. Bush hated communism. Again, overseeing Operation Condor, And uh, of course, of course, he's going to protect Reagan. So just like every other president, right? Look forward, not backward. And it explains
1: why, you know, not just because he didn't want the investigation to continue, even after some of these officials got charged with crimes, which he later pardoned. But I think it also speaks to the fact that he probably didn't want Reagan to get put in the hot seat again, even after Reagan left the presidency. Because if you watch Reagan's actual testimony to the Iran-Contra hearings, it is Insane, like he did such a bad job that there's a reason why you never see it on TV ever.
0: Why? What does he do? He
1: just looks so fucking guilty,
0: yeah. <laughs> and he stumbles.
1: And he looks so fucking guilty. I mean, it's it's just one of those clips that's been erased from history. I think for a very good reason. Just like what we'll talk about later, like the Highway of Death. That's kind of erased yeah. from history too. I didn't even hear about that until I was like in high school. Right. So. Right. Because this is before the internet. So, a lot of this stuff is just, you know, they can pick and choose what gets out there. And and people also forget, it was very obvious at the time, I was a child, but reading stuff from Robert Perry and other people, it's very obvious that Oliver North was put out there as the fall guy. And it was done to deflect away from all the top level officials like Elliot Abrams and others who were committing felonies and involved in this. Right. So... We don't, people don't even remember anybody else's name other than Oliver North, but there were actually much higher level officials who went down that were more important.
0: Yeah. And it didn't even matter for a little Ollie because now he's, you know, where he is now
1: head of the NRA baby after having a fucking like 10 year long running Fox news show.
0: Right. Fucking nuts. So even, even, even the fall guys can just get right back up there. (laughs) Of course.
1: Look at Ari Fleischer. He's all over TV. He's a fucking fall guy. What is George H.W. Bush's relationship with war criminal and infamous neoconservative Elliott Abrams? During the Reagan administration, Elliot Abrams served as assistant secretary of state. During his tenure as assistant secretary of state, uh, he was involved in almost every horrific dirty war you can imagine during the Reagan administration. El Salvador, uh, Nicaragua, helping prop up the Sandinistas. He was also deeply involved in the Iran-Contra affair, which actually got him, this, this is the strange part, actually. So I didn't realize that he wasn't indicted, um, but he was facing indictment. Lawrence Welsh, the independent counsel who was in charge of the Iran-Contra case, uh, was prepared to file multiple felonies against Abrams but for some reason was never indicted. But these were floating over his head during the George H.W. Bush administration, and he served as VP under Reagan. So of course this motherfucker is going to pardon these people. And that's exactly what he did. He pardoned Elliot Abrams. And Elliot Abrams was easily the most high-level official who got implicated in the Iran-Contra scandal. Um, that would almost be like Paul Wolfowitz, You know, going to jail or being indicted or facing felonies under the W administration. Eventually, um, of course, Elliot Abrams was pardoned and he came into the George W. Bush administration. Um, He served as special assistant to President George W. Bush. This is hilarious. This is the actual official position he had. He was assigned to the special assistant to the president and senior director for democracy, human rights, and international operations at the National Security Council. So I'm going into Elliot Abrams a little bit here first, um, just to pave the way, a larger discussion about how integral George H.W. Bush was to forming the original project for the new American century, Cabal. One of those big initial acts in doing so was protecting from a felony prosecution, felony indictment one of PNAC's um, core members who was actually an experienced government official who was part of PNAC when Bill Kristol originally formed it. But let's get back to George H.W. Bush.
0: Former CIA director and again, VP of Reagan, right? So we're talking about a time when the Reagan administration was providing Saddam Hussein with intelligence credit weapons um, to prevent Iran from winning the war. So all throughout the Reagan administration, an eight-year-long war between Iran and Iraq that kind of culminated in 1988 when George H.W. Bush got inaugurated. Um, about six months later, mm-hmm. the culmination of this war was marked with the U.S. downing a civilian Iranian airliner over the Persian Gulf. We didn't do that. This At the, at the time... At the time, this was actually one of the worst aviation, like, Accidents in the history of the world, and and I'm calling it an accident in quotes because, as we know, um, they actually purposefully shot it down. They lied and lied and lied, um, but they knew the whole time that it was a civilian airliner, and they just wanted to shoot it down because the U.S. commits war crimes. So they shot down a a civilian airliner with 290 people on board, including 66 children. So 66 children. So within just let me just get this straight. So within the first six
1: months of George H.W. Bush becoming president, we fucking shot down an Iranian airliner.
0: Yes. Yes. And it was the final nail in the coffin for this eight year long war. And the Reagan administration Mm -hmm. was trying to do everything that they could to prevent Iran from winning the war. So we're talking about sanctions imposed on Mm -hmm. Iran and not only selling them um, the ability to make chemical weapons so the compounds to make chemicals, but also turning a blind eye to the fact that they were using chemical weapons against, quote unquote, their own people, well, just which we use later, decades later, as a reason to invade Iraq again.
1: Well, I was just going to say that it's one of the most bullshit talking points ever. So that's why when you hear people saying Assad does that, you really right. have to take a step back and analyze things. Because right. Saddam Hussein was using our money to make chemical weapons that we completely allowed him to make to be used against the Iranians during the Iran-Iraq war, killing who, God knows how many people with chemical weapons. It was just hilarious that, that, that we just turn around and use these talking points, you know, later oh, on. Yeah. It's almost oh, like it was you, designed not oh, yeah. just to make us want to go to war with Saddam later, it's also designed to make us forget that reality that you, we, you just described.
0: Yeah. Or, or what about the reality of Saddam kills kids? Saddam's the next Hitler. We're going to get into that because that was the whole justification for the first Gulf War. Babes out of incubators, Which, baby. What's really amazing about this is think about this. This was like less than 30 years or about 30 years after the implementation of the Shah, the overthrowing of a democratically elected leader in Iran. I mean, this revolution where the U.S. imposed this harsh authoritarian rule on the country, then we shoot down this airliner on top of that, funding the other side of this devastating war for eight years straight. So then the U.S. downs this airliner, um, bringing the final capitulation of Iran, humiliatingly so, by the way. Um, The Washington Post reports in 1988 from the Ayatollah Khomeini, he says it was actually worse than swallowing poison, having to accept this defeat, but they were pushed into a corner. It was literally the epitome of this undeclared war against Iran, and so they knew at that point they have to retreat. Can you imagine just being attacked by the U.S. over and over and over again? It's so brazen. And they remember this. Every year they remember this.
1: I mean, it's just so brazen. It's the type of stuff we accuse Russia of doing now, like shooting down MH17, you know, and we still don't even really know what exactly happened there. So we couldn't even ascribe necessarily like a real motive, unless it was an accident, you know, that they shot it down. This seems very clear that we did it to send a message It was very brazen it was deliberate and it was done to send a chilling effect to the iranians probably to back down like we're not fucking around man we will just wipe out 290 of your civilians on an airplane we don't give a fuck
0: i mean that's what it seems like to me yeah and and it is exactly like that because george hw bush a normal person who isn't a complete psychopath would have said oh my god um, this was a horrifying tragic accident I am so sorry on behalf of our country and government for the fact that we shot down a civilian airliner that killed 300 civilians. Instead, here's what George H.W. Bush said, quote, I will never apologize for the U.S. I don't care what the facts are. I'm not an apologize for America kind of guy. Yeah.
1: And you really have to listen to that quote to, to hear the full monstrousness of it. You know, we think of him, oh, he sounds like a friendly grandpa. He's almost got kind of a lispy, effeminate quality to his voice. Mm -hmm. Well, listen to him say this quote and you'll realize immediately, oh my God, that motherfucker has like an evil switch that that motherfucker flips a lot and he's an evil son of a bitch. (laughs) I mean, you can hear it. His voice is chilling in that quote.
0: Yeah, luckily I haven't heard him. I don't know if I can stomach it.
1: Oh my God. And and just to fill in some context here, we're about to go into... you know, what happened during the Panamanian invasion, which is another horrifying incident, which for some reason, the U S military needed to overcompensate and call it operation just cause because they (laughs) knew there was zero cause for doing it. But just some context around both these events is that Saddam Hussein and Manuel Noriega were CIA assets during the tenure of George HW Bush, when he was director and when he was VP. So, just, it's just odd that the U.S. always gets involved with these people who become a- intelligence assets and all of a sudden we pull the plug and we're like, oh shit, now they're, they're our enemy. Like this has happened it's so like many times to us. Oh yeah, Bin right. Laden too. But we actually hired Saddam Hussein to do assassinations. Manuel right. Noriega was a protected drug trafficker.
0: I mean, th- these are all facts. So what sparked this? Because in 1990, he invaded Panama. He sent tens of thousands of troops and hundreds of military aircraft to invade Panama and arrest Manuel Noriega for, quote unquote, drug trafficking. As you mentioned, he was a CIA operative trained at the School of Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia. Oh, wow. Shocker. Seems like he got a little bit too uh, brazen. And emboldened with his own drug trafficking. So he went out of lockstep with the U.S. government. And so, you know, when people do that, the U.S. needs to tighten the noose. Yeah. So what did we do? We sent in tens of thousands of troops. How many people were killed? 3,000 Panamanians. 3,000 Panamanians. That's as many people as died in 9-11. Yeah. Um, The U.S. military fought a quote-unquote army You know, smaller than the size of the NYPD, we're talking about like a heavily fortified military machine going in there.
1: You can almost describe it like it was an experimental exercise by the U.S. Army to see what would happen if they just randomly attacked um, a modern city. With the U.S. military to see what would happen. For no reason.
0: For no reason. For no reason at all.
1: From the movie Panama Deception, which I'll talk about briefly, and other things, other video that I pulled up when I was working on American BISC, is that Panamanian government people and citizens were still finding mass graves, hidden bodies. Oh, my God. That were from the war. What I'm calling a war is a mass murder. By the U.S. military. Right. So not only did we kill 3,000 Panamanians on record, there were still mass graves. And and why do you bury people in a mass grave? To hide war crimes. There's the, the only reason to do it. Wow. Um, yeah, there's footage of people bulldozing up uh, bodies from mass graves in Panama.
0: Unbelievable.
1: And... The Panama Deception this is just an interesting difference contrast to modern day is the Panama Deception was a documentary film I believe that either came out during the Clinton presidency or right at the end of it where it was a movie destroying the US narrative about why we invaded Panama showing blatant war crimes that we committed and it was it's one of the most critical Anti, you know, U.S. military advention intervention films to this day, it won an Academy Award for best wow. documentary, which is insane to think that a movie like that would win an Academy Award. Now, the only movies that win that are even nominated now that are political are like against Russia or Assad, right? So, and and it's also interesting that they also allege in the documentary, and this is something that's kind of um, not. People don't pr- talk about this too much because it's kind of wacky sounding. But apparently, they also alleged that experimental weaponry was used in the in the war too. That we still don't know what it was. Um, that did really crazy things to people's bodies. It, kind of white phosphorus esque uh, damage to human bodies.
0: Can you imagine what Panamanians thought? They're like, "What the hell is happening here?" Yeah. Why is the U.S. military invading our country?
1: I mean, the sad no thing is I didn't even know really anything about this. I just thought it was like we, when I was a kid, I remember hearing about it on the news and thought that we just like went in there and took out Noriega or something, right. came back. But when I was in high school, my Spanish teacher was Panamanian and she actually told students to watch the Panama Deception and people were like, why, what is this about? And, and she would. She was very mum about it. And she's like, I'll get in trouble if I actually told you why I wanted you to watch this, and she was explaining to us that she just watched the documentary like she doesn't even want to talk about it in too much detail because she's wow. afraid of getting fired. I mean, she hated, she had like very deep hatred for the U.S. government because of what they did in Panama.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Yeah. We got him. We took out Noriega. We got him. We got him.
1: I still think of that video clip of Paul Gram- Bremer almost crying, looking like he's choking up when he says we got him, talking about Saddam Hussein. Disgusting oh man. God. Do you want me to tell you this weird story about the screenwriter?
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay, so this is just a strange... So for, for years and years in the conspiracy movement, just like Prescott Bush stuff about working with Nazis, I had heard about these alleged sex tapes that were made by Manuel Noriega um, of coke fueled prostitution orgies that apparently were attended by high level U.S. intelligence officials when Noriega was still our ally, and I would hear I heard about that for years and years as being the rat, the actual secret rationale for invading Panama to somehow destroy these this blackmail evidence, <laughs> which seems like a kind of a ridiculous like if you really p- pick it apart it seems kind of unbelievable. I mean, what do you think about that? Have you have we talked about that story before?
0: No, that sounds unbelievable. Yeah, it
1: sounds unbelievable. Like it was more believable to me before. But what's interesting was the Daily Mail, um, actually backed up some of that narrative. In a, you know, the Daily Mail is is kind of wacky sometimes too. It's not the most credible news source. Let's just say. But in two thousand fifteen, they did this really long investigative story. Judging by the Daily Mail, it's probably stolen from somebody else's story. So just keep yeah. that in mind. But in it. This tell a fascinating story um, about how a Hollywood screenwriter named Gary Devo, who was behind the movie Raw Deal, which is one of easily Arnold Schwarzenegger's worst film ever, where he plays like a Russian guy and Time Cop, uh, that Jean-Claude Van Damme action movie, sci-fi movie. Uh, screenwriter of both movies announced uh, that his next major script was going to tell the story about how Manuel Noriega was blackmailing high-ranking U.S. officials by secretly filming them in coke-filled prostitution orgies. This Daily Mail story goes on to describe how he mysteriously vanished after he announced this project that he was working on. A manhunt was put on to find him. You know, he's considered a missing person for several months, and he was actually found dead underwater in his SUV still still seatbelted into his SUV with both hands severed. Um, and to this day this sort sort of story mostly falls into the realm of conspiracy, but there there's some very bizarre things about the death of the screenwriter and maybe what it, how much of this story might have actually been based on something real. I just heard about this over the weekend and it just kind of blew my mind. So definitely check out this thing about gary devo yeah it's very very surreal it's just strange how many things that george hw bush was somehow peripheral to um that involve. you know everybody talks about all the clinton body count vince foster i mean there's a lot of mysterious deaths surrounding george hw bush's policies um in general and this is we'll talk about one later but
0: it was absolutely fascinating yeah
1: I mean, it's it's a real story. I mean, this is not something right. you only find a conspiracy website. This guy actually died. He's he was a very, you know, well known Hollywood screenwriter at the time. Definitely check it out.
0: Well, I don't put anything beyond the realm of possibility. I mean, I'm mean, talking about you know the most powerful empire in the world, and then also when you involve drugs and prostitutes, and I mean, look at Jeffrey Epstein, which we're going to get into in the next episode. We're going to go into. Me Too updates and like the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. But I mean, just the fact that this guy was literally bringing around like five underage girls like a day. Yeah. Got to slap on you the wrist. And, and, and presidents, like literally presidents. From both sides of the political his spectrum. Plane. That's what I'm saying. It's so
1: nuts. I mean, if anything, like that's the real pedo gate
0: conspiracy or whatever. Right. Right, but for some reason it somehow is outside of the periphery of the Pizzagate-obsessed Trump supporters. I like how you <laughs> like said somehow. they don't somehow. care about the fact that Trump... Yeah, somehow. Uh, <laughs> so one year after the Panama invasion, where 3,000 people died, again, the amount of people that died in 9-11 were slaughtered in this Panamanian invasion. I mean, can you fucking imagine that? So just one year later... And we're just talking about foreign policy here. I mean, we'll get into, like, how disgusting Bush was just on the domestic front, because he absolutely was racist. He expanded the prison industry. The list goes on. Homophobic. But just in foreign policy, I mean, it's astounding how much he actually did just in four years. One year later, in 1991... He launched the first Iraq war, the Gulf War. But mind you, before this was all launched, and we're going to talk about how this was actually launched, because it's very similar to how the Iraq war in 2003 was launched, on a pack of lies that were very deliberate and propagated through a very slick PR campaign that involved corporate media. But before even all of this happened, Bush's ambassador had told Saddam just weeks before the invasion that we have no opinion on your border dispute with Kuwait, And basically this was interpreted as a green light. Remember, um, we were already giving Saddam weapons, money. We had lifted all the sanctions. We had complete diplomatic ties with Saddam. Of course we were giving them a green light to do whatever the hell he wanted. Um, And in fact, they actually said, we have no opinion on this border dispute. Essentially do whatever the hell you want to. So Saddam invaded Kuwait. I don't know exactly how many people died during that invasion. Um, But immediately after that happened, Bush Sr. started the talking point that America had to go and protect Saudi Arabia because all of a sudden Saudi Arabia became a target. He was like, okay, now Iraq's going to invade Saudi Arabia. And as we know, we already had that oil for military protection partnership. That came out of the relationship with Saudi Arabia and America. They're the garrison in the Middle East to launch all of these wars, right? So there was already this fake talking point that Iraqi troops were amassing at the border of Saudi Arabia to invade Saudi Arabia.
1: Wait, you mean that wasn't so th- real?
0: <laughs> wait, so, so that's... Uh, it's, so wait, I thought it was like a
1: batshit conspiracy theory to suggest that we showed them fake satellite imagery.
0: Isn't that amazing? And there was even corporate news anchors that went. And like, I don't know if they were given this or what, but they actually had like fake satellite images of troops amassing at the border.
1: You know, what's interesting about that, Abby, is that that whatever that dusted off, like this is, you have to remember too, this is like right at the tail end of the Cold War. Right. Like ending. So, right. so that's kind of like Cold War era, technically. The only reason I brought that up is because it's fascinating to me that the next time in popular American, like propaganda launches that we saw the whole using satellite imagery to prove things were bad by other countries was when the cold war 2.0 started back up. Right. Straight up, man, the Ukrainian troop buildup, I'm sorry, the Russian troop buildup Mm -hmm. on the border. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, Russia did some fucked up stupid shit in Ukraine, obviously. But that whole idea that like like a hundred thousand Russian troops were amassing on the border. There's never been any evidence shown of that ever. Those satellite photos were fucking not. obviously not. I mean, if they were real, it's like we have to ask the question, why wasn't there any footage of that from the ground? That's a lot of people. That should have been easy to photograph.
0: Yeah, and the reason that I bring up the Gulf of Tonkin is because I feel like Americans were already savvy enough at that point, you know, 15 years after this war, to basically say, oh my God, we obviously can't be duped again. So just imagine like the sophistication.
1: Oh my God! Yeah. um,
0: Behind the scenes of how they need to sell the next war real good.
1: Well, yeah. So that. So so what you're saying is they they did it by, you know, they got invited media to a special like kind of almost like screening, secret screening of the evidence, which was like satellite imagery claiming something was happening that really wasn't. And that's not even the in the half of it.
0: Oh. Oh yeah, let's get into the
1: next yeah. lie. The, that, the public lie. the public wasn't even really aware of that. So that was almost like one aspect of how they doctored things to get grease the skids for war. But the other component yeah. is just like so much weirder.
0: So much weirder. Yeah, And this is going along with why the fake news mantra has such a legitimate appeal right now to people who are media critics or whatever, don't trust the mainstream media. Yeah, this comes from a truthful thing. Um, this was not the only lie that got us into the Gulf War. There was an implementation of a vast propaganda campaign that centered on the notion that Saddam not only gas his own people, right? Assad gas his own people, Saddam gas his own people, but specifically killed babies. And we gotta do something about killing babies, right? That's Hitler. That's Hitler Revisited. In fact, George H.W. Bush said he was Hitler Incarnate. He was Hitler Revisited. We have to do something because he kills babies. So I heard this guy, Rick MacArthur, John Rick MacArthur, who's now the president of Harper's, He was on Democracy Now!, he was the one who broke this story and exposed the fact that this woman who was the linchpin of this entire propaganda campaign was a farce. So mind you also that this did not come out during the Gulf War. So this entire campaign of lies about Saddam kills babies, specifically, was entirely based on the testimony from a 15-year-old Kuwaiti girl named Nayira. On October 10th, 1990, Nayira gave infamous testimony that you can watch before Congress, very riveting, about how the horrors inside of Kuwait after Iraq invaded were absolutely mind-blowing. She says, quote, The second week after invasion, I volunteered at the Al-Adan Hospital with 12 other women who wanted to help. I was the youngest volunteer. While I was there, I saw the Iraqi soldiers come into the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of the incubators, took the incubators and left the children to die on the cold floor. It was horrifying. I could not help but think of my nephew. And I'm just like trying, I'm like, can't help but even impersonate her because it's such like a harrowing clip. And she's like, they took the babies out of the incubators. It's good acting.
1: It's good acting. Like it's better than you. I mean, like that you would expect for someone who is 15 years old. I mean, this is like a child actress. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So again, we did not know who this woman was. No one asked any questions at all. Robbie, we're talking about Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International. Amnesty actually put the number to 300 babies. being pulled out of the incubators. Oh, I had
1: no idea that they fell for it too. So it wasn't just coming from the Bush administration and the media, it was also the human rights organization's uh, wow, that's really disturbing. Civil
0: society wow. organizations, just like we talk about. So, Jesus Nayira, turns out she was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the U.S., Saad Nasir al-Saba. She was coached by a PR firm, Hill and Notlin, which was working for the Kuwaiti government. So, not only did these civil society organizations and NGOs run with the story and actually not investigate it at all. Again, this wasn't investigated until after the damage was done. The Gulf War was over. So goddamn. This is why this fake news shit is so legitimate. I mean, to a certain extent and rings true because people remember stuff like this. They wonder what else is the media capable of doing. It makes you wonder also, what about these human rights reports from more closed off countries like the DPRK, Venezuela, all the countries the US is trying to wage war with. I mean, we already know specifically from Venezuela and Nicaragua that the human rights reports are heavily skewed in favor of the opposition because that's who has access to reporters and US government officials. So they're not going out of their way to investigate and corroborate these claims. And I guess that really surprised me the most looking back at this is how, you know, human rights watch and amnesty went along with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is really surprising, even though I know those organizations don't have like a totally clean record. I'm just, that's still really surprising. Um, Yeah. Apparently George HW Bush uh, used it eight separate times in different public appearances and speeches And I don't know if there were recordings of each one of those eight times, but it is on record doing it at least eight times. What's just so interesting to me is it's so fascinating that they would have been so brazen back in 1991 to not even hire just like a random actress to do this performance that they actually did it so blatantly, it could be immediately traced right back to the Kuwaiti royal family. So it makes you wonder how much more sophisticated these type of like PR war sales pitches are today. I mean, but it's also interesting that whoever was directly ordering this PR operation used a public relations firm, a company to do it, which in a way it actually, and in some ways makes it similar to the way things are still done today. So is it more sophisticated or have we just have people just at large been more brainwashed into just not paying attention or caring? We know that these like PR agencies do this kind of shit for like other countries and but we actually really don't know very much information about what kind of PR agencies do things on behalf of the U.S. government now, right? To get us into war, so it just raises so many questions. Because this is another right. example of we're seeing how the sausage got made a little bit, kind of like the Magnitsky Act behind the scenes documentary showed us about Bill Browder. But we don't get glimpses directly into how it's made this like this clearly very often. So it's a very teachable moment. How much more often
0: does this happen and we just don't know about it? We don't have the, well, it was proof. One of the most. It was one of the most carefully curated public images of war. Exactly. And again, they learn from Vietnam and this was the first live televised war. So the Pentagon was pulling reporters. There was hundreds of reporters on the ground, but they were all being pulled into like very small groups of like 5 and going through censorship screenings with the US government and the US military. So they would be brought in front of the Pentagon and they were told what happened that day. And they were shown on TV screens like very precise like missile guided Attacks and like just told, we hit our targets, we're using all like laser guided missiles, and we, you know, very low casualty rates or whatever. There was like no corroboration or verification on any of this. These reports were then recycled just amidst all the reporters that were there and then vetted again by Pentagon censors. Again, the Vietnam, the, the bodies, the gruesomeness, the imagery of that war, the protests, the American public saw nothing from the Gulf War. I mean, nothing. it's such a good point. I mean, because we, it's almost like it's easier to
1: watch a movie like Full Metal Jacket and understand what the Vietnam War might've been like. It's still not that easy to find like video footage out there of like how brutal it was in terms of the amount of civilian casualties and the amount of just blatant mass murder that we were doing over there. There's like few handful of clips. There's a famous photo of the girl running covered in napalm. I think that one right. maybe had more impact than anything else, you know? Right. And there were right. some other things too, but like, I mean, it it was absolutely insane you know, the type of video evidence that was being captured. Um, But even still, I mean, still to this day, it's difficult to find just, you know, video and just regular photographic evidence really showing how crazy and mass murderous American soldiers were over there. You know, people give John Kerry shit for talking about people making necklaces out of ears and stuff like that during his like winter soldier testimony. But all that shit was totally real. 100%. Even worse than uh, what we probably have been told.
0: It's actually unbelievable when you see the amount of devastation and like murderous actions just over this 42-day incursion. The Gulf War was 42 days long, technically. These long press conferences that they were having with the military and planting all this propaganda, um, probably very little reporters reported on the fact that the U.S. bombed an air raid shelter purposefully... They killed 408 civilians, 408 civilians. Can you imagine? It's the most horrific massacre They knew it was a place that people were trying to seek refuge. But they didn't just bomb air raid shelters. They bombed power stations, electricity plants, food processing plants. I mean, all of this was done, quoted by U.S. military personnel at the time, strategically so that Iraq would not be able to recover after the war and would be forced to depend on foreign assistance, thereby be easier to control with sanctions.
1: It's it's just so awful to think that you know, to me, these are the most egregious examples of like the punitive and evil nature of how the U.S. government throws around its weight. I mean, it's it just seems deeply punitive, almost like the same way Israel wants to starve people in Gaza and stuff. Like it just and, and then the, these human rights groups don't really talk about these kind of things very much. You know, how much ink did um, Amnesty International spend on the babes out of incubators fake story versus this?
0: Or the highway of death. Oh yeah, I mean, God. talk about punitive measures. I mean, George H.W. Bush, even after Saddam said, we are retreating, uh, the U.S. blocked off 60 miles of Kuwaiti roadways and relentlessly bombed a 60 mile path of essentially 2000 like military vehicles and not just military well, yeah. vehicles tons of civilian cars packed with families that they later claimed after they relentlessly bombed and just destroyed and kill, massacred tens of thousands of people they claimed that they were looting they were like no the, none of these people were civilians they were just looting like Iraq and that's why their their cars were full oh of like my stuff God. I mean, when I first saw those
1: photographs, it maybe wasn't until after 9-11. Like, I didn't even know about this even ever, ever happening. You know, so I was in my early 20s by the time I even discovered it. And there was, this, an ob- there was an obscure website that was... I think it was actually the photographer who took the pictures. And apparently, this is what I was just listening to on, an, of all places, a stupid NPR segment. But it was saying that the that the photographer just assumed that they were going to become like nationwide famous photos, just like right. the Vietnam girl and stuff. Right. And what he found was nobody ran them. Nobody wanted to show them. None of the media organizations at the time would show them. Um, so that's really chilling. That just shows how controlled the media was back in 1991. Um, and then, you know, it was one of the most massive singular war crimes I think that mm-hmm. maybe has, was ever photographed that the U.S. Mm-hmm. government was responsible for. Um, you, like you said, up to two thousand vehicles, uh, up to ten thousand human beings were incinerated on this highway. I mean, it looks like it almost looks like it a nuke looks dropped. like a
0: nuclear bomb. It looks like yeah, Terminator it really does Two, look like a nuclear bomb. Yeah, it does. I feel it like does.
1: Terminator 2's opening scene might have actually even been based on the photos. Like maybe James Cameron had seen them.
0: like It it literally looks that crazy. And we promised safe passageway. That's the thing. This was like organized. The US said, you're safe to go. This was completely um, within compliance of the UN resolution to withdraw and leave on these passageways. But punitively, because the US empire is so fucking psychotic, Bush would not accept his withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Bush said later, he was like, just to cover this up, he said that um, he said that the Iraqi forces were not withdrawing, but they were being pushed from the battlefield. So that's why they needed to like keep berating them. I mean, it really is one of the most egregious war crimes in the history of the U.S.
1: Yeah, and and there's still you know some credibility to the idea. And I don't remember exactly where the source of this comes from, but that the Bush administration actually withdrew early um, from how long they actually wanted to stay there because they were apparently concerned that the other human rights groups in the UN would investigate the highway of death and people, too many people would find out about it. Um, so they wanted to pull, like that was apparently part of the factoring in of why we pulled out so quickly that we realized someone realized at the top that we, that it literally looks like a Holocaust. Like we just, and that's,
0: that's exactly what it was. I mean,
1: yeah. So instead this story got completely buried and forgotten by history. Except for like anti-imperialist or anti-war historians and writers. I mean, that's, I feel like they're responsible for us knowing about it now. Initially, Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, like I was saying in the early 2000s when I heard
0: about it, like I wouldn't have heard about it if it wasn't for people like that. I never even really connected that famous photo that you see, you know, of that one guy, the charred burned. guy. Yeah. Yes. I never even really connected that. That was the highway of death. I saw it somewhere. And then I just, it's like, that should be such a visceral image that everyone knows immediately when they say they're like, Oh my God, it's the highway of death. Like there's a horrible shit that the U S government did and like know everything about it just as much as you know about Holocaust imagery.
1: Yeah. Imagine, I mean, come on just for a second. Imagine that picture. So this is an aerial photograph. You can look up if you Google image search right now, highway of death of showing what it looks like a bombed out freeway with thousands of cars. Imagine all those cars fleeing before Mm -hmm. getting bombed with all their luggage on top in a traffic jam. Yeah, Right. That's what happened. Even if you believe the stupid narrative that they were all soldiers, they were fleeing. Right. That's still against UN any human rights conventions.
0: Well, when you read quotes of these people, Talking about what it was like The people on the US military side It's the same kind of sick Quotes that you see of people who were Retreating finally after they devastated And obliterated all of like North Korea They were like there was nothing left to bomb Like why are we doing this I mean it was almost like people being like I'm sick I'm like fucking disgusted that we're like even still doing this. Like there's no one left. Mm-hmm. We're literally just like bombing out like craters at this point of charred remains. Um, that's how sick it was. God damn. And it's, it's crazy too, how it's like
1: full metal jacket and maybe a handful of other movies, the only movies that exist that really show the brutality of these modern wars, you know, from the Korean war on. I mean, I, I don't even think anyone's made a Korean war movie that shows how it was basically just a Holocaust by U.S. Mm -mm. military. No. I mean, like someone needs to make that shit because that's what happened. That's historically accurate.
0: How many people? Three million uh, or something like that? Like one third of the entire population of Korea.
1: It's insane.
0: And so when the Gulf War technically, quote unquote, technically ended, you know, 42 days after it started... Of course, the U.S. war in Iraq would continue for decades. So, bringing us back to George W. Bush Jr., the guy who said, "My daddy didn't finish the job." Ironically, having used the "quote-unquote" killing babies as the justification to invade and decimate Iraq in the Gulf War, by 1995, the sanctions that the U.S. had um, implemented had already killed 508,000 babies. Oh yeah. So, isn't that that amazing? That ironically was
1: worth it, right?
0: Yeah, ironically. Um, blow up Iraq because Saddam kills kids based on a fake PR scam. Mm-hmm. Then, ironically, then the U.S. ends up killing over half a million babies from sanctions.
1: It's nuts. It's just, it's
0: just interesting, isn't it?
1: It's super interesting. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just want to throw in there really quick that the that also the this was not during George H.W. Bush's presidency, but the Iraq narrative continued as a thread that went on for pretty much. In between the end of the first Gulf War and to the start of the second one, we were trying. There was media narratives blaming the 1993 World Trade Center bombing on Saddam Hussein. Um, There were also reports that Timothy McVeigh was working with Iraqis for the Oklahoma City bombing. So all these things were like being floated out there, and that brings us to uh, one of the last famous incidents that involved George H.W. Bush, other than him vomiting in the Japanese Prime Minister's lap, apparently. (laughs) Fucking can't hold his liquor, I guess. I guess Magog from The Skull and Bones can't hold a few uh, drinks of sake? The fuck? I mean, he what happened to him? He has to drink them out oh, of the Oh, I know what happened to him. Skull. He was on an illegal sleeping pill. That's what happened to him. Mm. Because he was actually caught on a hot mic on the Larry King show saying that he takes an illegal sleeping pill. Whoops.
0: He likes his liquor in the skulls of Native Americans. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, he does. Um, but when he was apparently staying in Kuwait for some like commemoration ceremony for him after he left the presidency. Well, first I should go back and say that Bush slipped W. Bush slipped and actually said once that part of the reason why he's interested in invading Iraq is because Saddam tried to kill his dad. So where does that narrative come from? Um, Well, apparently Um, So let's just take a look at how that narrative actually holds up. If Saddam Hussein tried to kill George H.W. Bush when he was visiting Kuwait after leaving the presidency. So Bill Clinton bombed Iraq in retaliation, apparently for this, uh, you know, assassination attempt. So reporters Jim Loeb and Seymour Hersh basically just completely tear apart the official account of this whole story. So basically it comes down to the alleged confessions of a Saddam ordered hit job done by this guy named Wali Abdelhadi Ghazali, a 36 year old male nurse from Iraq. And then another guy named Rad Abdul Amir al-Assadi from Najaf. Um, both men ended up retracting their supposed confessions and claimed in court that they were beaten into submission by U.S. authorities to give them. Like, literally beaten. Oh, my God. I don't even mean figuratively. So, this is like an example <laughs> of, like, false confessions by, like, torture from, like, the Bill Clinton era. Um and the, other piece, the
0: age of civility.
1: <laughs> the other piece of evidence that was used as proof that there was an assassination attempt is the apparent bomb they found a link to both men was, was that the man was manufactured in Iraq. Seymour Hersh talked to 10 different bomb experts in the article he did debunking this whole story, um, who completely disputed the accusation that this bomb had any evidence linking it to Iraq at all. None of them confirmed that. Um, and he basically, he confirms the whole assassination account by George HW Bush Kuwaiti authorities and U S intelligence officials as seriously flawed. Um, and even Joe Wilson, whose wife was later outed by the W administration, Valerie Plame, as a CIA agent for, for debunking the uranium in Africa story, says that the official assassination plot on George H.W. Bush is, quote, odd. So so this, <laughs> think, you know, this story just completely falls apart. So it's just strange that the Bush family got the Clinton administration to bomb Iraq again after the first Gulf War had ended based on some fake assassination attempt story. I mean, That's who copy this whole thing?
0: I mean, it's just so fascinating. And then here we are where Bush, his son, just invades based on 9-11. Mm-hmm. And based on WMDs. It's like, it's just, well, and just and then quite And we surreal. all know now
1: that he apparently, within like the first month of him getting inaugurated, was already talking about how can we figure out how to evade Iraq. Right. So.
0: Right. <laughs> Unbelievable.
1: The rhetoric... And the media combined with his rhetoric and the way he portrayed Saddam Hussein helped sort of enshrines it on Hussein into like popular culture as like a demonic villainous figure. Right. I mean, he was even in Hot Shots, part one and two, like that Mm -hmm. actor playing him. I mean, South Park, the movie came out before 9-11. People maybe forget that. The bad guy in it was Saddam Hussein. I mean, so just like these things had a big cultural impact. Right. The big Lebowski even kind of riffs on that in like the fact that he has like a dream where he imagines Saddam Hussein like working as the guy at the bowling alley, giving him his bowling
0: shoes and just like, so I don't know. Right. Yeah. No, it, it all like set the stage. You know, for people who are maybe too young that don't remember all of this, like it really did set the stage for where we are. Like this uh, bloodlust.
1: Yeah, it was like, it was familiar to us by the time 2003 rolled around. It's like, oh yeah, Saddam Hussein. He's like the other, He's like mm-hmm. that bad guy that's in all the movies and like the news always talks about. It's just, yeah, it was already very familiar to us.
0: And like George Carlin said, uh, we have the receipts. Yeah, exactly. The weapons. It's
1: like, that's, that's who sold them the weapons. Tying Rumsfeld back to that. There's a video of Rumsfeld yeah. shaking Saddam Hussein's hand back when oh, we were right, allies right, with right,
0: right, mm-hmm.
1: right. Rumsfeld and Cheney were um, in the Ford administration. That's how they got their footing in Washington, D.C. This, this also ties George H.W. Bush to all these people because he was CIA director forging a special relationship with the Ford White House and their chiefs of staff who happened to be Dick Cheney. Uh, about, Unreal. you know, feeding the White House CIA briefings. People think that the CIA sort of took over the United States after the death of JFK, but I, sort of the way I look at it as a transition was, it's, it's true that the CIA did sort of take over the U.S., but it was a much more slow and nuanced transition, and it sort of wasn't until George H.W. Bush became acting CIA director... That the CIA director established a new protocol, um, a direct line to the sitting president to brief him. Those presidential daily briefs became integral to sort of the White House behavior that came in the morning um, after this relationship was forged between the Ford White House and George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush actually worked hard at going against normal protocol and he really wanted to forge this special relationship with, you know, a pretty dumb fuck really incompetent president at the time Gerald Ford. I mean he's most seen in history as one of the dumbest the inconsequential presidents ever but behind the scenes there were a lot of consequences because being formed sort of during all this was a neocon cabal of Dick Cheney Mm -hmm. Rumsfeld, Mm -hmm. Paul Wolfowitz so as CIA director George H.W. Bush actually created that infamous Team B. Just some backstory on What Team B actually was, the thing that infamously involved neoconservative Paul Wolfowitz um, basically fixing and doctoring intelligence to make it look like the Soviet Union was behind all these international terrorist attacks. Just to give you some backstory, from Wikipedia, it says, quote, President Gerald Ford began the Team B project in May 1976, inviting a group of outside experts to evaluate classified intelligence on the Soviet Union. Team B, approved by then Director of Central Intelligence George H.W. Bush, was composed of outside experts who attempted to counter the arguments of intelligence officials within the CIA. At the time, White House Chief of Staff under Gerald Ford was Donald Rumsfeld. He wasn't actually in the CIA, but he became very close with Paul Wolfowitz, who was actually working as a private citizen for Team B at the time. And according to Wikipedia, it says, quote, Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz wanted to create a much less charitable picture of the Soviet Union, its intentions and its views about fighting and winning a nuclear war. Now, the person person hired by George H.W. Bush to head Team B was a private citizen, Harvard University professor named Richard Pipes, who was a well-known neoconservative as well. Um, Richard Pipes hired a bunch of people under him, including Paul Wolfowitz but this is not where the relationship between George H W Bush and Paul Wolfowitz and the earlier early iteration of PNAC ends to counter that prevailing narrative in the CIA the idea that international acts of terrorism against the uh, western interest and the United States were all linked together and were actually a conspiracy and a plot done by the Soviet Union to disable uh, to destabilize the west it came up with basically just false you know, falsely framed, cleverly framed arguments to say that all these international terrorist incidents were actually an overarching plot by Russia and the Soviet Union. Um, they were all somehow directed and staged by Kremlin intelligence. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it?
0: Well, yeah, and especially since his term coincided with, like, the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, he, he helped um, engineer this neoliberal globalization and, like, fire sale in the post-Soviet era. Mm-hmm. And that's when you hear this speech, the New World Order. I mean, he's setting the stage for NAFTA, WTO, IMF to wreak havoc on these new markets. So it, it is weird that you, like, hear Alex Jones and stuff pick apart that New World Order thing, but, like, they don't really talk about how it's just global capitalism that he's talking about entrenching. It's just... It's interesting, yeah, that that's the moment like it seems like that's sort of when Alex
1: Jones's historical or some of these like paleo conservatives historical perspective starts with this George H.W. Bush. Like they still don't want to go after Reagan very much, but it didn't really mark a distinct change from the Reagan era. I mean, the globalization was mm-hmm. already well underway, you know. So it wasn't really a new world order at all, but a, just an optimistic rebranding of rampant global capitalism shaping the world and then the fictional Mm -hmm. trickle down economics somehow on a global scale. Like everyone's going to benefit every, every Mm -hmm. no countries won't fight anymore because we're making so much money and so prosperous. I mean, it's just like a total utopian bullshit propaganda talking point. So.
0: Yeah. He also said the American way of life is not up for negotiation. That's just like a babyish thing that he said. But I think another significant thing is that he's the one who nominated Clarence Thomas. And this was after the Anita Hill Sexual harassment scandal was well underway. Mm-hmm. It makes a little bit more sense when you realize that he was also um, a, a molester late into his life. He had molested women all throughout his life, um, unwanted sexual advances, groping. Um, nicknamed, David nicknamed David Copperfield. Nicknamed David Copperfield. He liked to call Barbara himself. Joked it. about it.
1: It was. He did it serially. He was a serial groper in his old age. And he had a nickname that became a running joke in their family.
0: This is real. That's really funny. That's super funny. This
1: is absolutely real.
0: What a nice guy. So different than Trump. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: They're worlds apart, but they're both horrible human beings. So right. one of the other things that interesting things that happened when he was um in the CIA was a car bomb assassination that took place on Embassy Row in Washington, DC. And it was an extremely high profile public murder. Um, and a lot of people have, you know, alleged that he knew about this high profile assassination before it actually happened. And then he had intelligence about it. And, but what we can prove now, and Robert Perry and other investigative journalists have basically proven this, is that he was involved in putting out a counter story to the idea that Pinochet openly w- put a hit on somebody and blew up a guy in Washington, D.C. Um, but indeed
0: nice deflection. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, let's just look at the facts, even if you don't even have to talk about what he knew at the time, Pinochet was a CIA. We were funding him. Like we were propping him up. So the fact that he was like even allowed to do this assassination attempt with a car bomb, and I should mention the victim, this happened in 1976, the police arrived at the scene and they found a human foot and a man lying on the pavement who had no legs Um, and he died a couple minutes later he was 44 years old his name is orlando ledier according to history.com he was the most prominent chilean exile living in the u.s uh, at the time so he was like a big outspoken critic of pinochet somehow he he, a car bomb was able to blow him up on embassy row one of the most secure cities in the world
0: can you imagine that i mean it's just so crazy yeah
1: it's absolutely nuts
0: It's like a classic CIA operation, but like happening within this country.
1: Yeah. So look into um, nuts. Yeah. I mean, you can, there's a a Robert Perry article on Consortium News right now called George H.W. Bush, the CIA in a case of state sponsored terrorism, because that's exactly what it was. Um, And he paints a much darker picture of George H.W. Bush's involvement in that, not just the cover story, but the foreknowledge of it as well. So definitely check that out.
0: Unbelievable. Well, anything else to wrap up about uh, this amazing president?
1: We need to go over a little bit more history between Paul Wolfowitz and George H.W. Bush right now. Most people aren't aware of this, but George H.W. Bush is actually responsible for bringing Paul Wolfowitz into a higher level of government. And he gave him a very top position in the U.S. government uh, under Secretary of Defense for Policy. A position later given to Douglas Fife under Donald Rumsfeld in the W. Bush administration. And of course, all these people are PNAC members. But what's interesting is, under the George H. W. Bush administration, Scooter Libby and Richard Pearl and Zalmay Khalilzad, all these PNAC members were already working on shit together for the U.S. government. And I don't think most people are aware of this. And this is uh, on Wikipedia. You can read about this as well. It's called the Wolfowitz Doctrine. And is actually the precursor to PNAC's Rebuilding America's Defenses document. And most historians agree that it is sort of the template for that document. Um, the Wolfowitz Doctrine actually leaked. It wasn't meant to become public. It leaked during the very end of the George H.W. Bush administration. And it kind of sparked some public outrage at the time as being like, wait, this is like a blatantly imperialistic ambitions like policy document. What the hell is this? It wasn't meant for the public at the time. And Wolfowitz claims uh, to this day that he wasn't actually responsible for the document, that his office drafted the document, but that he wasn't personally behind writing it. It's almost doesn't, even if that's true, it almost doesn't f- fucking matter because all the people who wrote it, the same PNAC neocons he later joined forces with in PNAC and in the W administration, Richard Pearl and Z- Zalmay Khaliazad are two of the main writers. Oh, and guess what? Paul Wolfowitz's deputy at the time was Scooter Libby. So it's kind of fascinating how many of these people just went directly back into the George W. Bush administration. Just another interesting tidbit about George H. W. Bush and his connections to the PNAC neocon cabal, not just connections, but his crucial role in forming that cabal. Um, is something that you actually didn't hear up, come up at all during his funeral coverage, even by people in the anti-imperialist world, which I was kind of surprised by. But that fact is that Bill Kristol served his only White House job um, under George H.W. Bush. Yes, you heard that correctly. Bill Kristol was actually called at the time Dan Quayle's brain. I just pulled up an article here from 1992 from the Washington Post called Dan Quayle's Gray Matter. Bill Crystal was 39 years old at the time. And the article essentially makes him sound like he was more influential and more powerful than Dan Quayle himself. You know, Dan Quayle is infamously known for being a bumbling fool who sort of looked good. Um, he's a charismatic sort of like John Edwards style, good looking politician, but he made himself out to be a dumb motherfucker. Um, I'm sure this immensely frustrated Bill Kristol, who was probably thought of himself as one of the most intellectual dudes in DC at the time who happened to be conservative. The Washington post says Bill Kristol is a conservative. He has spent four years turning quail into a spokesperson for the causes that George Bush has only paid lip service to. The SDI, the Competitive Council, legal reform, deregulation, congressional term limits, and support for Israel. Hmm. So support for Israel and deregulation are two big things that Trump has run rampant on. Of course, Bill Kristol is part of the resistance movement. They bring up the fact that Bill Kristol is is, um, influenced by Machiavelli and has gotten Dan Quayle to quote Machiavelli and Plato based on his influence. And then there's an interesting section where Bill Kristol sounds almost like a Steve Bannon Breitbart-esque figure. And keep in mind, this is from 1992. So neoconservatives, these intellectual neoconservatives really mirrored and acted exactly like people like Steve Bannon in a lot of ways. And here's just an interesting example. In the article... The Washington Post qu- quotes Bill Crystal, who is currently serving as Dan Quayle's chief of staff, as saying, there are huge segments in American society that we not only don't control, we barely have a foothold in, you know, culture, the entertainment industry, the mass media, the universities. And then Crystal goes on to say, the notion that you can't criticize Hollywood or intellectuals because a lot of them are Jewish is really ridiculous, says Kristol. I've heard that charge just once or twice in the last month or so, but it honestly never crossed my mind. It's a genuine red herring. Well, isn't that fascinating? Because that's the exact same talking point that Bill Kristol and people like Elliot Cohen and other neoconservatives actually trotted out to deflect away from them being a dangerous neoconservative cabal of warmongers by saying, wait a second, we all happen to be Jewish. Is neocon code for Jew? I mean, I would be willing to bet money that bill crystal was behind that because here is him in 1992 on the opposite side of it being accused of using coded anti-semitic language talking about the hollywood and and entertainment elites in the united states just back to my original point bill crystal got into the white house because of george h.w bush and guess what? Bill Crystal's think tank, the Project for the New American Century, ended up just pulling dozens of figures that circled around George H.W. Bush when he was CIA director, when he was VP, and when he was president. That is not a coincidence. Jeb Bush was actually one of the original signatories of PNAC's Rebuilding America's Defense's document. And it's interesting, at the very end of the article, they sort of foreshadow the opening of the Project for the New American Century. It says, if the Republicans lose, his next stop may be one of the shadow governments the conservatives set up at, the th- at one think tank or foundation or another. He has a lot of friends at the Hudson Institute, including his former boss, William Bennett, who is also a PNAC member. And just for the record, William Bennett is a pro-Trump PNAC signatory uh, neoconservative people who don't remember that the history of neoconservatives and these social conservatives were actually quite merged. Um, And actually in this article, they quote Denise D'Souza praising Bill Kristol, saying that he likes the fact that he's sort of more Machiavellian minded. Um, They also link Bill Kristol together with Newt Gingrich in this article. I think that's very interesting that a lot of this history has more or less been erased. The Washington Post article goes on to say he is a made guy in Washington's conservative mafia, a pal of reps, Vin Weber and Newt Gingrich, with all the credentials of a Harvard professor. So they're essentially the Washington Post is essentially saying that when if the Republicans lose, which they did, George H.W. Bush lost the the midterm election. He didn't serve a second term. Then Bill Kristol will go and start a shadow government think tank or join a think tank. It was actually worse than what the Washington Post predicted. He went on to start and form, with his daddy's money, the Project for the New American Century, one of the most infamous, dangerous neoconservative think tanks that planted 17 of their own members in the George W. Bush administration.
0: You have a ton more stuff. The AIDS crisis, I forgot about that. I
1: mean, do you want to go into that? I mean, how disrespectful and how horrible he was to the gay community? Might as
0: well, yeah, wrap it up with with the AIDS stuff.
1: Okay. I mean, I'll, and I'll end it with a little just fun fact tidbit uh, to let people look up for themselves about some strange connections between George um, H.W. Bush's family. We didn't even talk about his involvement with the Carlisle Group and the Bin Laden family either. Right. I mean, that's a that's totally real. So definitely check that out. George H.W. Bush's involvement with the Carlisle Group um, and the Bin Laden family, which owns the largest construction company in Saudi Arabia to this day. Back in... Um, the early 90s, um, there was still an AIDS crisis happening. And while as president, George H.W. Bush actually exacerbated the AIDS crisis. It ignored the deaths of, at that point, were 180,000 people, including the people who had died during the Reagan administration from AIDS. And of course, Reagan was horrible towards the gay community, completely ignored, you know, the AIDS crisis. So, Both presidents were deeply complicit in this, Um, and the crisis was so bad while the president ignored it that gay activists actually scattered the ashes of people who had died from AIDS on the White House lawn during protests. Wow! And one of the famous activists who was involved in getting the president to say something or do something about what was happening or the U.S. government to respond to it died during sort of a lot of these protests um, of AIDS, he eventually died and they carried his body to um, uh, the election headquarters of uh, Bush's New York City election, re-election headquarters. They carried his corpse <sighs> to it. I mean, this is, these were like extremely intense protests, you know, grassroots protests by the gay community for the most oh part.
0: Oh my God.
1: I mean, Masha Gessen um, from the New Yorker, uh, she wrote a pretty good article about this that just came out um that, like right after he died actually which I was glad to see mm-hmm. so there are some articles coming on mainstream media that are sort of painting him you know uh, uh, in terms of how uh, much of a piece of shit he was um they're a little bit hard to find but they're out there and you want to read that quote of his what he said about the gay community when asked about aids
0: he says, and I once called on somebody, well, change your behavior. If the behavior you're using prone to cause AIDS, change the behavior. Next thing I know, one of these act up groups is out saying, Bush ought to change his behavior.
1: That's so That's fucking crazy. And actually he called pig. this group Act Up, I believe they were called. <sighs> He actually said they were taking the First Amendment too far. They were like an extremist free speech group. He made all these like bizarre comments about them, almost implying what they were doing was like breaking the law.
0: Yeah, so, I'm surprised he didn't label them terrorists.
1: No, I mean, yeah, that like he didn't go that far. Well that's what have. you know. That's that's how far that and awful the rhetoric has gotten now. But back then, yeah, he, ba- he kind of was insinuating that they weren't legitimate. Like they were dangerous. Um, Oh, and he also imposed a temporary ban on allowing anyone to enter the United States who had AIDS. So instead of actually like helping people and and saying things to try to like reach out to the public, this is the kind of shit he was doing. He was just like butthurt. And then he ended up signing an act that recognized things and actually like made some kind of official declaration. He caved under a lot of public pressure. Um, and then, and then you know, the same disdain for the gay community continued under the Clinton administration as well. So it's not, it's not like George H. W. Bush was uniquely bad on AIDS or uh, you know homophobic, but he he was pretty fucking bad.
0: That's well, pretty horrifying. It's amazing to be reminded of that because, of course, it was before my time. You know, I mean. I didn't even know most of this stuff, and it, that's why it's really insane to be refreshed with really, truly, how horrible these people were and what their actual legacies were on things that were so monumental. and for the response, the official response to be that, it was sort of like callousness where people were actually bringing the corpses of their friends like to your face and just being like, this is fucking real. I know. Um, it's sick. It's really, really devastating. Uh, wow. And like how far we've come now, at least with, I guess, the semi acceptance with homosexuality. Um, it seems like it's a little bit tapering now in this country with the Trump stuff, but yeah, it's, it's devastating. It's so important to remember how we got here, you know, and what happened and how much these people were dismissed and this community was dismissed and punished, punished.
1: You would think that the government, even just on like a public safety level, would be like, "Well, we don't want AIDS to even spread anymore. Like, if we can stop it from spreading, it's like a contagious, fatal disease. Let's like give a you know HIV medication out to people, like, so that their like viral load is like really low." Or so you would think. It just like nothing, you know. Since our healthcare is just no, so they like up looked at country. them
0: like subhuman. Yeah. They're like, "You disgusting cretins! Why are you behaving this way? Like, change your behavior." Yeah. You animals. I mean,
1: the only thing even similar to that is like needle exchange programs, which I am a huge right. advocate for. At the very least, if you're not going to have a solution to like the like an opioid epidemic, people injecting heroin all over the streets, then at least provide clean needles. It's funny that people are just like, oh, those are so liberal. That's such like a utopian, like just like head up its ass, like liberal, liberalism gone too far idea. Like needle. That's how people used to look at needle exchanges.
0: No, it's because we live in cities. We are interacting with people who are on drugs and who are gay. We don't live in a fucking little bubble um, that think that these people are like aliens. I mean, we want to help our fellow human beings, brothers and sisters that we live and coexist with. So these people like George H.W. Bush and Dick Cheney, gay people are so separate from them. It's like it takes Dick Cheney's actual daughter being gay from even like have a spark of empathy where he's like, Oh, my daughter's gay. Mm-hmm. I guess I should accept this now. I mean, it <laughs> just really, it really has to get to that point for these people to be human. Yeah. But not that Dick Cheney's a human. Yeah. Talk about Hitler incarnate. I mean that that's, that's the U S government. Yeah, And that's where
1: George <laughs> W Bush got his entire cabinet. Where do you, how do you think W became such a neocon mm-hmm, vessel?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How did that right. happen? It's because of his right. daddy. This yes. all links back to his daddy and not just his time as president or being under Reagan or pardoning Elliot Abrams and and all those people from around Contra this is from him being CIA director and working with Cheney and Rumsfeld in the Ford administration and also working with Paul Wolfowitz while he was CIA yeah. director. Yeah. I mean this all goes back, baby, to him.
0: Right. So
1: if you want to talk about how disrespectful it is to talk ill, speak ill of the dead. I mean, I'm thankful for humanity, uh, hearing about him dying, because it would be like Henry Kissinger dying. Anyone responsible for that much death, and then putting the and then starting the ball rolling on the PNAC, uh cabal that created millions more deaths in the Middle East. It's good that that person's gone. Well, now, I feel then safer. That's when
0: you realize- how disgusting the mainstream media is, and just the corporate stenography of these journalists who are all about access and just hagiographies of these disgusting war criminals who oversaw murderous empire. Um, war crimes, incessant war crimes, the death of tens of thousands of people. I, this is disgusting. And you have the have fucking audacity to talk about Trump? Yeah. When you're doing revisionist history for this fucking war criminal? Um, so, yeah, it is it is uh, a little bit disheartening and nauseating, to say the least, when I see all these people who pretend to give a shit about Trump and authoritarianism and ooh, creeping fascism. No, no, you're you're giving an entire pass to everyone who literally brought us Trump and the neocon cabal and the Iraq war.
1: I mean, that's the craziest thing of all if the neocons who got us into the Iraq war and who lied to people and tried to manipulate people and tug their heartstrings are able to rebrand themselves. Like they're literally the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. So that's really, that shows how dangerous of a predicament we're in. We have on one team, these rebranded war criminals and war criminal enablers and propagandists. And on the other team, this fucking evangelical cabal of even some crazier neocons, that are mm-hmm. not even, like, they're too crazy even for the PNAC neocons alongside of Trump. And who just ratcheting up all this, like, civil war-esque, like, anti-left rhetoric and anti-migrant rhetoric every day. I mean, which team? Pick your team. Right, pick, pick your, your team. Pick your fucking team. It's just so fucking weird. And here we're all yeah. led to believe by these, these stupid people in alternative media who are still putting their head in the sand that Trump is fighting the deep state. He just asked for 700... He just asked to raise the military budget again. I mean, it's just sad to me.
0: It is. I mean, can we give a quick Palestine update? Do we have time or do you need to go? No.
1: Yeah, let's do it. Yeah.
0: Trump, hands down, has been the worst president for Palestine. I think that really goes without saying. You can talk about the Great March of Return. You can talk about the moving the embassy to Jerusalem. You can talk about a lot of things. You could talk about the personal relationship with Netanyahu and Jared Kushner. And you can talk about the actual erasure of the existence of Palestinian refugees, you know, the attempted and concerted effort on behalf of Trump to literally erase Palestinian refugees as an entity, and just completely abolish all aid to them. So, Within the context of all of this, the the issue of Palestinian liberation is becoming more popular amongst progressives. This is no longer a taboo thing. I think at this point you're really not a true progressive unless you really do embrace the liberation of Palestine, whereas 10 years ago a lot of people were progressive except for Palestine because the issue is still confusing to them because, again, it's flipped on its head and you're called an anti-Semite if you don't support the racist apartheid state of Israel in its current form. So anyway, this brings us to the mainstream media, which is still in this dystopian, weird dichotomy that you just presented to us, Robbie. Pick your team, pick your camp. Um, This issue is still off-limits. For example, a CNN contributor, Mark Lamont Hill, a black American guy, was fired not for saying anything on air, not for saying anything on CNN. No, he just simply gave a talk at a UN committee on the exercise of inalienable rights of the Palestinian people in New York. It was on the eve of the UN-recognized International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. He gave a talk, just like I would give a talk, about the lack of feasibility for a two-state solution. This has been known for decades. We already understand this. He was talking about the support for resistance against occupation, and he denounced Israel for depriving Palestinians of basic human rights. And within this speech, he said, a free Palestine from the river to the sea. What did people react to this? And they said that he was calling for a genocide against Jews. Because apparently, he's saying you want a free Palestine for the entirety of Palestine in Palestinian territory is calling for the extermination of Jewish people. Shocking, I know. Um, so, again, this goes to show you that if you are simply your own person, your own entity speaking, totally removed from your job and your post at CNN or really anywhere on corporate media. And if you are just simply not endorsing the apartheid state or the occupation of Israel, you cannot have a job in mainstream media. You must adhere to these views. People like Ben Shapiro, Fox News were claiming that Hill had literally called to kill all Jews in the oh region God. because they say freeing Palestine from the river to the sea means, well, where's is Israel going to go? No, dude, Freedom. You're against freeing these people who are under brutal occupation. You don't want them to be free to the river, to the sea. It's always been a slogan for the Palestinian liberation movement. It's never meant the eradication of anything.
1: it's such obvious Hasbro. Historic
0: Palestine. And he had to come out. It was so pathetic. He had to come out and he was like, I do not support anti-Semitism. I do not support killing Jewish people. What the fuck? Like, are you kidding me? He actually had to say that. Oh my God. (laughs) It's so fucking crazy. I mean... We know that a two state solution is not possible. The West Bank has been completely atomized. The only remaining options are the continuation of apartheid or a single state in which both Israelis and Palestinians share full and equal political rights. This is an obvious truth. It's forbidden to speak about. So Israel can just keep up the facade of a two-state solution. I mean, this fake peace process that's realistically been dead for decades. And this guy had the audacity, I guess, to just say he wants to free Palestine. And that means exterminate Jews. So he was fired. And it really shows you uh, that really still is the third rail. I feel like way more so than anything else still
1: crazy it is so crazy and it just makes me wonder too it's like the trump administration is so deep balls deep with netanyahu and the Likudniks in israel that i I just makes me wonder like what are they letting israel do here to like run their own pr shit like it might even be more open season than before like who orchestrated this smear campaign against mark lamont hill and and got him fired it seems very orchestrated to me like, I mean, that somebody was really ready to like fucking throw the hammer down. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't know.
0: Of course. But no, of course. No, all these people are ready to go. I mean, these, there's these organizations, yeah. they're multi million dollar organizations that have these PR campaigns ready. And I want to get into just a really quick great March of Return update. Over 220 people dead, over 18,000 Palestinians wounded. So, this last Friday, the 37th week in a row, of the Great March of Return. Um, just this last Friday, 72 civilians were wounded, including 11 children, one woman, and two paramedics. Oh my God. And it's just ongoing. It just keeps going and going and going. And if people were confused a couple weeks ago at, you know, you probably saw in the news, oh, exchange of fire. Oh, clashes at the border. Oh, dozens of rockets sent into Israel. And in fact, I think someone actually died. An Israeli actually died from a rocket. Well, what the media was actually missing was that Israeli forces committed a a severely botched raid where they actually went into Gaza, killed seven people, of course, violating a ceasefire like it always does. And so Hamas was filming this bus full of Israeli soldiers and they like purposefully waited for all the soldiers to leave the bus except one. And then they like blew up the bus or killed one soldier or something because they were trying to tell Israel, we could kill all of you right now, but we're not going to because we don't want to escalate the war. We're actually adhering to the ceasefire. We're not trying to escalate this. You guys are. And then the media is claiming that, oh, what do you know? Hamas violated the ceasefire again and just shot a bunch of rockets. Totally unprovoked, totally unprovoked. It's not like a fucking IDF forces came and assassinated seven people. So this is all, this all fucking happened. Not only that, after the rockets got sent, of course, everyone's up in arms about these rockets getting sent. No context whatsoever to the rockets. And then what do you know? Israel bombs another bombardment. They threatened kind of an escalation similar to the 2014 bombardment where the 500 children were murdered. But this one was a, a huge bombardment of Israeli air raids. And they bombed the TV station again. The Al-Aqsa TV station. They just bombed the shit out of it.
1: Jesus Christ.
0: Huh. Weird. So journalists um, being dismembered in a consulate. Bad. Bombing an entire TV station, good. Because Robbie, they were displaying Hamas propaganda. So, you know, got to take them out at the knees. Mm-hmm. You know, Israelis, unlike many other countries where people probably protest the war, you know, you have this terrible war going on. You know that your government is sponsoring like an ongoing massacre mm-hmm. and just like relentlessly bombing an open air cage. Instead of protesting that, Israelis actually went to the street to protest the ceasefire. Where else in the world do people protest when the war stops?
1: Jesus Christ.
0: Recent polls showed that 64% of Israelis wanted to escalate the bombing in Gaza. And when I posted this and I was like, look, there's no hope from within Israel. It's a racist society. And people were like, what about the 36% who are good and who don't want to escalate bombing? And I was like, no, you don't understand. It's not that the 36% want to stop the bombing. And then you look at the polls of the 83% of Israelis who actually support the government's open fire policy of unarmed protesters in Gaza. I mean, that is straight-up fascism. Can you imagine if 83% of Americans polled said that they want the Border Patrol to shoot to kill migrants trying to seek asylum? Unarmed protesters' children, 83% of Israelis support opening fire, shooting to kill People at the border, not even the border, the fence that they're caged in. So amidst all of this, amidst all of this, two really crazy things happened. I thought that the tide was turning. I thought that people like Natalie Portman, this so-called liaison for Israel, you know, her saying she's not comfortable representing the country. She cost the $2 million of that award ceremony. I thought the tide was turning. Then I found out that Razan al-Najjar... Uh, that young medic shot with her hands up, beautiful feminist woman, Palestinian woman, killed. A billboard in like Boston was put up for her saying, honor the Palestinian heroes or whatever. It was like her just smiling. So much pressure um, on the company that put up this billboard. They had to take it down preemptively. Why is that a fucking scandal? What a disgrace. You can't honor someone who was slaughtered by an apartheid regime with her hands up gunned down in cold blood, and you can't put a poster up to honor her. Then, this IDF fundraiser, this gala in Los Angeles where Pharrell, the same guy who says Trump can't play happy at his rallies because he's offended. He's offended by Trump and his policies. This motherfucker goes to perform for the IDF. Ashton Kutcher, Gerard Butler, Fran Drescher, Arnold Schwarzenegger all organized by the friends of the IDF, they raised 60 million dollars. First of all, I was so stunned when I saw this. I guess because of this ongoing massacre, I really thought that celebrities would have to like, distance themselves. Especially since like, US government officials have distanced themselves. And this wasn't even a fundraiser for like, Israel in general. This was literally a fundraiser for their fucking military who's committing an ongoing massacre that gets 10 million dollars a day from us. They thought that that wasn't enough. They wanted to fucking raise $60 million for these murderous military personnel, these snipers. These people are sick. When you, when you saw that, what was your thought when you saw that they actually held a fundraiser for the military? Were you shocked?
1: Yeah, I was. I mean, especially considering that someone like Natalie Portman and other celebrities have started to, you know, pull back on their support of Israel. I really was. Um. But makes me wonder what their deal is. I mean, what why? I mean, but Asin Critcher <laughs> or however you pronounce his name is just such a moron anyways. Like he just posted a right. thing of him like drinking out of a mug that said CIA on it, saying like shout out to the brave men and women in the intelligence community or something. He's just like, What? What
0: kind punk, of fucking dude.
1: dumbass does this shit? Bootlicker?
0: Got punk, dude. Fuck you. Come on. You are going to a fundraising gala to donate to a foreign military. Isn't that not just strange? Even if they weren't committing massacres, even if they were just like a normal military, it's just the weirdest shit in the world. If
1: someone did that, if Russia tried to do that now, people would fucking freak out. It'd be like a week long news story.
0: It's so weird to me that like Americans can go and it's some honorable thing to go leave the safety of your own home in like Wisconsin and literally go move on top of an Arab village and join a foreign army. So you can harass and murder Arabs. Yeah. And who knows? That's what these people do. Yeah,
1: And I wonder too, like how involved the Trump administration is with these like private, like groups that collect money for the Israeli military and stuff, because you just hear about this story. um, And I won't go into it in too much detail, but um, there was, there's evidence that's come out that the Trump hotel was getting paid for, like paid money, lavish amounts of money for these all these rooms by the Saudi government to host like American uh soldier veterans, like for these events. Ew. And they were spo- and they were paid for by Saudi Arabia and the Trump administration was like doing this weird business deal with them like on a yearly basis and there was like millions of dollars involved. It's a bizarre story, so listeners should go wow. check it out. Yeah.
0: Yikes. Mm-hmm
1: and Sheldon um, Adelson is well, I, his, it was Trump's biggest donor, too.
0: Right. Oh, he's the, he's the biggest donor of the Republican Party. And Trump just awarded his wife. Oh, my God. His wife with the nation's highest civilian Hilarious. honor to Miriam Adelson. That was nuts. Yeah. Why? Why? He's fighting the deep state, dude. <laughs> fighting the deep state. <laughs> he, was, he had to do that, Robbie. Mm-hmm. They made him do that. The deep state made him do that. Yeah. You know, in this latest kind of erasure of Palestinian refugees, what do you know? Saudi Arabia, the closest ally to Trump after he held that big ball, um, they are banning Palestinians from Mecca. Isn't that amazing? And you know why? You know why? It's a part of a bilateral agreement with Israel to put an end to the, quote, Palestinian identity and the right to return for refugees. So obviously a close deal with Trump and Netanyahu. Again, Saudi Arabia stabs Palestine in the back.
1: But he's fighting the deep state so good. I mean...
0: This is 8D chess. This is 1632 yeah. D chess. He's eventually going you to... You have no idea where this is going.
1: Mm-hmm. It is uh, it is brilliant, though, because he's eventually going to... What is the end game? Like, what do people think? But it's funny because, I mean, most of the people who think Trump is fighting the deep state actually don't care about Israel.
0: Oh, they don't, Or yeah, I mean, they, they don't care yeah. about
1: Palestinians. Like, they like, you know, they're like Zionist, like... Basically, like Zion right. is neocons anyway, so mm-hmm. it's really strange.
0: Yep. And uh, just to wrap it up with this Palestine update, um, now they're forcing Palestinians to self-demolish their homes. What so the as fuck? we know, um, home demolitions are skyrocketing, settlements are skyrocketing under Trump because the green light has just never been more apparent. Um, according to Bet Salem, the human rights organization based in the West Bank, Israel's demolished Almost 800 homes in the past couple of years, leaving more than 2,000 homeless. Um, About 103 additional homes have been destroyed by the owners. Why? Because the fees implemented by the Israeli military for violating their quote-unquote like housing regulations and housing laws and zoning laws. Palestinians don't leave their homes because they know that if they leave their homes, they'll be taken over. So they stay in their homes and then they just have, you know, they have additions to their families. So they'll build a little um, addition to the home, they'll build a room, they'll put a partition within the home. That's all considered illegal. So if you apply for a permit to build an extension to your home, you'll never get it approved. And of course, Israelis find out about it, probably because they have spies and stuff anyway. And then they'll charge you an egregious fee on top of a home demolition order. Um, because they they charge you for them to demolish it. You know what I mean? So then the Palestinians will be like, well, it's cheaper for us to demolish our own home because we can't afford to be in debt and be homeless. And um, this woman, Nora Murad, who's organizing a campaign to help this particular family who's being displaced, she told Al Jazeera, quote, self-demolition goes even further. It forces Palestinians to participate in the violation of their own rights and physically implement their own dispossession. Self-home demolition is one of the many types of injustices that Israel does that are not well-known outside of Palestine. It's a whole new level of depravity when an oppressor makes their victims pay for their own oppression, which is what Israel does by sending bills to Palestinians whose homes are going to be demolished. And with the whole Russiagate stuff, as we know, I mean, scratch just a, a layer of the Russiagate stuff, and it's all about Israel collusion through and through, and I mean, every day I just see another story about how Israel actually helped Trump win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this Israeli spy firm called Psy Group was doing literally what they accused Russia of doing. Um, the Psy Group scheme was revealed by the New York Times codenamed Project Rome. Elaborate effort, this is from the Electronic Intifada, to quote, create fake online identities, to use social media manipulation, to gather intelligence, to help defeat um, Hillary Clinton and Republican primary race opponents. The guy who's the CEO of this company was commanding an Israeli PSYOP warfare unit. And they're involved in a campaign against BDS. What do you know? So this guy, and he's the emissary for two powerful Gulf princes it's so who apparently funny. had met with Trump's son to talk about how they could help the Trump campaign. And Trump later paid them $2 million. So, hmm, it's, how weird. It's just
1: so funny because when they when we talk about this Russian disinformation campaign, most of it all you know all the stuff they can hoist up as examples of it, like the Facebook ads and et cetera all most all that stuff is not necessarily in ninety nine percent of the cases like pro trump. It's just like right, weird random shit, like you know right. whatever the sewing discord thing, which is mostly bullshit anyways, but it's just like you know they'll put like a left issue or a right issue or whatever. It's all kind of random scattershot, like let's throw things on the wall to see what sticks. But Mm -hmm. what you're describing is like actually what, how the public has a warped understanding of what Russia did to help Trump win. That's what Israel was doing.
0: But let's wrap it up with some good news here because there is tremendous BDS success. Airbnb withdrew all of their units from the occupied West Bank. But not Jerusalem. So again, I mean, even though this is a big success, it's like it's the least they could do. And also shocking that they even allowed them in the first place. Can you believe that Airbnb was even allowing people to like take over Palestinian homes and then put them on Airbnb? (laughs) And then the ADL cast this move as anti-Semitic, of course. The Quakers have now announced that they would no longer invest in companies profiting off occupation again what took them so long? We're talking about a sect of Christianity that's been opposed to slavery, apartheid, you know, genocides. It's like, why did you, what took you so long? Um, two police departments in New England have canceled their annual visit to Israeli police forces. As we know, like almost all. US police forces go to travel to Israel and they get paid to do that and train with IDF forces. And so apparently BDS pressure, From Vermont and Northampton prevented their trips. Obviously, this is due to mounting community pressure. I mean, that means that there's a lot of people there like involved locally, because why the hell would they care? Another huge thing that happened is NYU passed a BDS measure. This is a first of its kind resolution. This happened in December 6th, called for divesting from corporations, particularly Caterpillar, Lockheed Martin, and General Electric that violate Palestinian human rights and call on the NYU to adopt a socially responsible investment policy. Now, this is really significant because I heard actually students saying that just a couple of years ago, it was unheard of for that to happen. Another really amazing thing, and this may seem kind of small because there is 400 plus uh, members of Congress, there are officially two Congresswomen who support BDS explicitly. Ihan Omar, the Somalian refugee woman who was elected to the House last month, and Rashida Tlaib. They both support BDS. Um, That is huge, you know, and and, and it's really encouraging. It's definitely worth supporting them doing things like this. I mean, they're part of a Congress that is staunchly and bipartisanly defensive of Israel. Obviously, two in a 435-member chamber are really unlikely to have a major influence, but like, it's really, really important and significant just symbolically. Um, So I think it's really big. I mean, yeah, the Progressive Caucus, I don't really have much hope about, like, really drastically changing the direction of this country. And again, it, like, legitimizes the Democratic Party in saying that we have the room to change it from within. But, like, this is a huge, huge, huge thing that we do have two people vocalizing support for BDS, especially since you're literally painted as an anti-Semite. And because BDS is being criminalized across the country. Since 2014, like over a hundred anti-BDS measures have been introduced. Yeah, I wanted to find out
1: if like any of those actually managed to pass. I remember the one specifically about, I think it was was it the New York Hurricane, mayor really? saying that anyone who practiced BDS could be like fined or something? Any business that did or so, I don't remember what. It,
0: Houston, when we were in Houston, the aftermath of the hurricane. Yes. They were, tr- they were making independent contractors sign an anti BDS form oh saying they will not give you any money to contract relief efforts.
1: That is so bizarre. I, I wonder if anyone found, did an investigative piece on that. Really got to the bottom of how that law was even put into place. That's so strange. We should
0: do, I want to do an Empire Files on that i'm reading from middle east eye just to wrap up this palestine segment um i just thought it was a good little articulation it said israel should clearly be on the wrong side of history and yet western governments and jewish leadership organizations are vigorously helping it deny what should be self-evident and thereby turning reality on its head a few years ago only the most rabid supporters of israel openly argued that anti-zionism equated with anti-semitism Now, anti-Zionism and solidarity movements like BDS are uncritically characterized in mainstream discourse, not only as anti-Semitic, but also implicitly as a form of terrorism against Jews. The right of Palestinians to dignity and to liberation from Israel's oppressive rule are again being made subservient to Israel's right to pursue unchallenged, a settler colonial agenda, to displace and replace the native Palestinian population.
1: And it's also offensive so. to people who are actually suffering from real anti-Semitism or like
0: oh who God. have had like
1: anti-Semitic attacks on them. people who died in the synagogue shooting. It's such it delegitimizes and makes it seem like it's just, it's just such a dirty tactic. It's so uh, gross that they use that, you know.
0: It's disgusting. Yeah. That's what
1: you said about BDS, though, is encouraging. I I didn't even know that about those two Congress people.
0: Yeah, no, every time I do an update, I'm going to find all the good news because there really is so much happening on a local level that is super inspiring and encouraging. And, you know, the tide really, really is shifting, even though there are dickwads like Ashton Kutcher and Pharrell. So, yeah, just keep trolling these assholes because they need to be exposed and shamed. Because there's no leeway at all at this point. You, the line has been drawn a long ass time ago. I agree. Well, big doozy today. Yeah, doozy. Uh, we're gonna yeah, we're gonna do the second half of the anthrax attacks soon. And I I've been wanting to do another kind of fun episode talking about movies and music and podcasts that I've been listening to because I have a lot more cool stuff to talk about. So we'll have to do that soon, Rob.
1: Yeah, let's do another one of those. Well, maybe let's yeah. unlock it this time if we do it.
0: Let's unlock that shit, dude. Yeah.
1: And we're going to try to do four episodes this month, but I mean, it is the holidays and um, we got a lot of shit going on otherwise. So we might <clears throat> we might take part of a break towards the end of the month. Um, yeah. So just putting that out there now so people aren't, you know, upset or confused and we don't put out a bunch of episodes like we normally do this month. Um,
0: yeah, we we could have like split this up, but we just figured just let it all out in one podcast, and it kind of is, you know. Yeah, it's a big one. So,
1: yeah, sometimes we go on for two and a half hours, but it's okay because we had a lot of shit to talk <laughs> about.
0: Well, I'm glad that we did the, Gave the proper legacy to our dear leader. Mm-hmm. You
1: too. Uh, rest in peace. Or, I mean, rest in shit. Rest nice in
0: peace, Copperfield Poppy Bush.
1: Yep. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And thank you so much for all of your Patreon donations and all of your support. Um, you can still become a donor for as little as $1 per podcast. It's patreon.com slash Radio. Yep.
0: Thanks so much for listening, you guys.
1: Yeah, thank you. Sorry if I sounded too pissed off during this podcast. I've had a lot of bottled <laughs> up anger about the world. But uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Take care.
0: And have a wonderful holidays if we don't talk to you before then. Bye.